Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today, I am proud to announce the Walt Disney Company is acquiring Lucasfilm, the global entertainment company founded by George Lucas and the home of the legendary Star Wars Obviously, the biggest news in the last 24 hours is the report that Star Trek director and creator of the TV show Lost, J.J. Abrams, has signed on to direct the upcoming Star Wars Episode 7. This would be a massive 180 change of heart. Virtual silence from director J.J. Abrams, Disney, and Lucasfilm. The cast of Star Wars Episode 7 has finally been revealed. As we've expected for quite some time, original cast members Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, and Mark Hamill will all reprise their role in the new trilogy with Deadline reporting that Ford will have So JJ's going to take a little time now and he's going to tell you about his childhood memories of Star Wars. Do you want to tell him why we're really standing here? Uh, who wants to see a new teaser? Yeah! The line outside Toys R Us was eight hours in the making. At midnight, the early birds reap the rewards. Tickets to Star Wars The Force Awakens went on sale last night, and the overwhelming demand caused several major ticket sites to crumble under the pressure. According to the Hello, I'm Ru Han. I'm very happy to be the Star Wars World Champion of the Chinese Empire. Let's go together. This is probably one of the craziest evenings of my life. Yes, and it is just beginning because the world premiere of Star Wars The Force Awakens is about to begin. People are going to be seeing this movie for the first time. Do you, want, do you want to go see Star Wars? I would like to go see Star Wars if we could. Masters and Padawans, to episode 146 of Full of Sith. I am Bobby Roberts, and with me, the captain of this here good ship, the Mike Pilot. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Our co-host, Brian Young. Howdy-do. And our co-host, Amy Ratcliffe. Hello. Let's just dispense with the pleasantries. We all saw The Force Awakens. You saw The Force Awakens, dear listener. And if you haven't seen The Force Awakens, um, this is all spoilers. So you might want to go ahead and just kind of stash this one away. Tuck it in your back pocket and wait until you have seen uh, The Force Awakens. Currently uh, destroying, at like some sort of box office Starkiller base, every known record <laughs> in the galaxy. If you've seen Star Wars, The Force Awakens. Welcome L- to the Brotherhood. Yes, Let's go. What we're going to do is, uh, I'm, I'm going to try to do it like this. We're going to fly all over the place. It's absolutely, we're going to bounce. We're going to jostle. Um, it's going to be sort of like the Millennium Falcon, say, buzzing through a forest and belly flopping into a mountain, maybe. That's kind of what the conversation, I bet, is going to play like. But in the interest of trying to provide some structure, what we're going to do, <laughs> what we're going to do, I'm just going to call out a character, and then you guys are going to go. 
Let me ask you something real quick. Yeah. That that ship took a beating in that movie. <laughs> so is that what we're going to be doing to the listeners, giving them a beating? Hopefully it will be the sort of exhilarating romp through the film uh, that we felt as audience members. Hopefully you will feel that, uh, dear listener, as we try to discuss, parse, and make sense of what it is that we've seen um, at least twice, all of us now. Uh, Amy, how many times have you seen it? Four. <laughs> I think Amy Ooh. got. I think Amy got his beat. I've only seen it twice. Uh, Mike, uh, three. Woo! Good lord. And Brian, four. Oh my god! Amy's the winner. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I'm the winner. Ty goes to Amy. Yeah, there we go. Uh, yeah, alphabetical okay. order. I'm seeing it number five in a few hours. Oh my god! All right, so we gotta we gotta hurry then. We gotta go. We gotta rush oh, no. because Lord knows if I make you late to the Force Awakens, I will not forgive myself. So. Let's just do this, you guys. Ray, Amy, go. I think Daisy Ridley is a goddamn superstar. Woo! She held her own against Han Solo as Ray. I thought I, my favorite thing about Ray, I bawled when the lightsaber came into her hand instead of Ben's, mm-hmm. Kylo Ren's. Uh, but I loved seeing her natural talent with the mechanics and pilot like Anakin, like Luke. It was an immediate clue early, like, this girl is special. And I love the line where Finn keeps taking her hand, Mm -hmm. and she's all, like, I know how to run without holding your hands. Yeah. I think that is Rey in a nutshell. I think she has so much spirit and heart. And I like that she was, she wasn't just that, like, stereotypical strong female character nonsense. She was nuanced. She was scared, because she should have been in so many of those situations. I am sort of in love with Ray, if you couldn't tell. Uh, Brian, your thoughts? I really like how she didn't necessarily take any credit for any awesome thing that she did. She saves Finn from those Wrath Tars by closing that door on them. And when he gives her the opportunity in the opening to take credit for it, she's just like, yep, yeah, that was lucky. Or when he's like, this was a, hu- this was a mistake, and she's just like, huge. Like, <laughs> she... <laughs> She doesn't take any blame for anything, but she doesn't take any credit for it either. Uh, I really liked that about her. Like, she's really more humble than any character. Like, we're used to really arrogant pilots like Poe uh, or Han Solo. And Ray was a delight to watch. And I have to say, like, Scout, uh, my 12-year-old daughter, she went and saw it at the end of the marathon. And we went yesterday to go see the IMAX 3D screening. And I asked her how she felt about this movie, and she's like, hands down, this is my favorite Star Wars movie. And I asked her why, and she said it was because of Ray, And it was because Ray, in her mind, uh, clicked with her in a way Padme and Leia didn't. And then I asked her how she compared with Ahsoka, and she said that she's a tie with Ahsoka. Ooh, that's, that's high praise indeed. Uh, Mike, your thoughts on, uh, on Ray? First of all, I want to say it's interesting sitting here watching Brian do Full of Sith. We don't get to do that very often. <laughs> so being here in his, his studio with all his toys is pretty cool. But okay, get, get an array. One of my biggest fears about this movie, I have never shared on this show because I didn't want to look like a naysayer or mm-hmm. uh, take a female character and express my concerns. Mm-hmm. So I kept it to myself. But what Ray is to me is fantastic. Like she was my biggest fear But at the end of this movie, she is my absolute favorite character in this movie. The amount of emotions that Ray 
brought out of not only me and my wife, my daughter, but everybody else in the theater. Uh, the way the expressions on her face when Han Solo is telling her that everything's real, that shocked, all big eyes. But the great thing about Ray, Ray in a nutshell for me, BB-8 tells her that Finn, who she doesn't know, uh, stole Poe's jacket. Mm. And she gets this determined look on her face <laughs> and chases him down. And I that scene, so seeing it three times now, I keep playing it back in my head. I just, that's Ray. She's determined to do the right thing. She's determined to help out whoever she can. She's, and she's just, she's just so cool. She's just, Ray has Far, far, far exceeded all of my concerns. And um, I think it's a perfect uh, role model mm -hmm. for I, a young girl because it's not that stereotypical, you know, heroine. Yeah, I, th I think I think it says something about the uh, the quality of her character that the meet cute because there is a meet cute in this movie. And we can talk a little bit about the romantic implications that I, I was not at all suspecting, especially as someone who was 100% spoiled going in. I was absolutely not suspecting them to hint at a possible relationship in later episodes with uh, Finn and Ray. But I did appreciate that the meet cute uh, begins with Ray hitting Finn in the face with a stick. <laughs> yeah. That is how those two meet, and I that that tells you everything you need to know. Like the the look on her face, like you said, as she's charging someone that she <laughs> thinks has done wrong to her little friend, who she just gave up more food than she's probably ever seen at one time in her entire life for this ball. And this ball is like that dude stole my friend's jacket, and she just like. You got to get hit in the face with a stick now. <laughs> like that—that that tells you pretty much everything you need to know uh, about Ray. I do want to ask you though, oh Brian, what were you going to say? I was going to say, can we talk about theories about who the hell she is? Because one of the things I was most excited <laughs> going into this movie, finding out was who the hell she is, and uh, we're not any any closer to that answer than we were when the movie started. No, yeah, and I at, think we are closer, but we don't know. To break it down for you guys, because you were completely 100% unspoiled, uh, on, on the spoiler side of things, there was a moment in time there for about like three or four months uh, when the people in charge of the spoiler game uh, were very much pushing the idea, they considered it almost like a 100% certainty, that she was going to end up being Han and Leia's kid. Um, and then somewhere around May, that started to shift, and uh, I was absolutely down with the shift. It probably makes a little bit more narrative sense and cleans up thematically if she's Luke's kid. That's sort of where we've been at since May. Nobody really knows, and I thought that maybe the film was going to kind of clear it up. And I've left the film knowing just as much as I did about that parentage uh, as I did going into it. <laughs> no, think, no, the film has changed nothing on that I front, think, which is fun. Well, actually, no. I, I think that the film itself has actually sort of put the kibosh on the whole Han and Leia are her parents thing. I don't think the film presents that as being a viable option, not just because Han and Leia seem to be uh, acting not like parents around her, especially not like parents who have dropped her off on Jakku at age five, but also just, you know, like the logistics of it. She's probably not the right age to be their kid it would be weird if nobody in the resistance uh noticed that their six-year-old daughter suddenly went missing one day and nobody mentioned it ever again like i just don't i don't think logistically it makes any sense for her to be han and leia's kid i think the movie rules that out there's a lot of evidence in the film that points to luke mm -hmm. right i mean every time she taps into the force you hear like luke's theme yeah 
and the main she's... title plays quite a bit. And actually, I do want to uh, I, w- I want to point this out because there are a lot of fans of the soundtrack, and we'll talk about John Williams's work uh, in a bit. Trust me, uh, there are a lot of fans of the soundtrack who uh, have been wondering where that cue is from the moment that Amy talked about uh, where she pulls the saber to her hand and the entire theater goes absolutely 100% electric uh, and the pure Star Wars of that moment just punches everybody in the chest. And they're looking for that specific cue on the soundtrack. Um, And uh, it was something I noticed on first view and I absolutely cemented it on second view. Uh, You won't find that cue on the soundtrack. And this sort of points to to Brian's uh, point that he's making right here. Because the music that's used when she grabs that lightsaber uh, is from the track Burning Homestead on the first Star Wars soundtrack. They took the music from when Luke is looking at the homestead, his dead aunt and uncle, and decides his face goes hard and he decides at that moment that he's going to join Obi-Wan and learn to become a Jedi. That's the music they use. I've got some out there crazy theories, though, about who she could be. Okay. Thinking about the mythology of Star Wars and the way they set up Ben Solo, Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if we're going to an episode eight from Ryan Johnson. And we keep hearing that Lawrence Kasdan and J.J. Abrams saying like, yeah, like Ryan Johnson's just taking it out in left field. Like his movie's going to be crazy. Yeah. What if the next step in becoming one with the force and becoming a force ghost is reincarnation? is to be able to inhabit someone's Whoa. force spirit. You are going mm. Wow, you're going so, way Wait, wait, wait. There. It gets better. Tell so, <laughs> so think about... Think about... So the, I've got two possibilities here that it could be Hold on, hold Anakin. on. But I'm imagining Mike has just rocked back on two legs of his chair <laughs> and he's got his hands behind his head like Chewie just pulled off a move on the hollow chest. He's like, no, no, it gets better. Tell him, Brian. Tell him about so, yeah, your I reincarnation mean, Mike theory. And I, Mike and I had the, the good fortune of seeing it sitting together last night, and yeah. I was kind of laying this out to him, and he's like, yeah, that could be. Um, <laughs> you're right. I'm sitting back with my arms folded. <laughs> so uh, think about the way they've set up Ben and his hero worship of Darth Vader, mm-hmm. and think about how much more upsetting that would be if the force spirit of Anakin Skywalker did not choose him. His grandfather. His grandfather, but chose her, this girl who has no connection to them, who has no right to that lineage. He's obviously very protective over that, you know, like that moment where he had that saber mm-hmm. and he wanted to, you know, he says, that's my saber, not because it was Luke's, not because it was uncle's, but because it was the saber of Darth Vader that started that journey to destroy the Jedi, Yeah, which is the quest he's taken on himself. Yeah, that saber, so, th- that saber is the youngling slayer. Yeah. Um, a lot of dead so, kids on that saber. So that, I think that, that <laughs> if, if there's a way Anakin could uh, put his force spirit into someone else to try to atone further for the sins that he mm-hmm. perpetrated in life, it would create this really interesting dynamic between her and Ben. After watching it last night, I noticed a couple of other things, right? Yeah. And these films absolutely stick to the cycles of Star Wars, right? In the right. first episode of uh, every new trilogy, the mentor character gets slain with a red lightsaber. Mm-hmm. Like, that's just a thing that happens. In Rey's Force Vision, she hears the voice of Obi-Wan Kenobi mm-hmm. saying her name. Yes, that absolutely does happen. There have been a lot of questions uh, about that vision and a lot of people were like I think I heard Yoda I think I heard Obi-Wan Kenobi yes you did 
You absolutely and heard them. We did some investigative and work. You absolutely hear it. And unequivocally. Unequivocally. And we know this because, Brian, you actually talked to James Arnold Taylor about this, right? Well, I, I tweeted at him and, and Mike tweeted at him and a whole bunch of people tweeted at him mm-hmm. asking what was going on. And I heard from a couple of other places as well, uh, independently, uh, off the record yeah. that, uh, but, but James is coming out publicly and saying it now that that was originally him, but they changed it at the last minute and they dubbed him over with Ewan McGregor, <laughs> which. So Ewan, think, McGregor, Ewan McGregor is in this movie. Yeah. Ewan McGregor had that line where he says Ray uh, as Ben Kenobi, which is doubly surprising to me because I didn't know mm-hmm. that Ewan McGregor could do that good yeah. of a, uh, of of an Alec Guinness because I thought it was Alec Guinness and that's why my mind instantly went to James Arnold Taylor. Yeah, yeah. Well, and once that tweet went out that said, you know, James Arnold Taylor was one of the additional voices and there was a big picture of all the additional voices, uh, you know, standing in front of their credit. I think that was the tweet or something like that. Everyone just sort of assumed that it was maybe James Arnold Taylor. But no, it turns out uh, it was Ewan McGregor, which has some which has some interesting implications. But let, that we're, we're digressing, so let's, let's get back. I, w- I will say this, like, I appreciate the creativity of, of Brian's possession theory, but I also feel like if we're going to start dealing with old characters actually inhabiting in any way the bodies of new characters, then you, you run into a problem where the new characters uh, have lost agency because yes. of that. And I, I think that's absolutely deadly, especially when it comes to someone as inspiring as Ray obviously is. Amy, your thoughts? I, I don't think that theory is something I, I follow. Yeah. I would be annoyed if she was like the spirit of Anakin Skywalker. That would actually sort of make me a little but angry. What if, I think what it if would it, just counter. What if it was more like something that uh, he has to give himself up completely to give her what power and the force he had? This is their way to get rid of the force ghosts, right? I think the way that we're going to deal with having the past still echoing into the future is solely through, like, I think familial lineage. I, th- I mean, and Kathleen Kennedy's already pretty much pointed towards that. I think literally having some of those characters come back, uh, sort of, sort of dents the, the forward progression there. Yes. Um, I, I would, I would I be agree. happier. I'd be happier if she wasn't anybody's kid. I think that to, to go along with the story and go through these next movies mm-hmm. with a new person, not any part of either family. Mm-hmm. I, I would like that a little more. Yeah. Well, well I, I think that for the sequel trilogy, I think it is important to have it center on the Skywalkers because we've had such a theme of that so far. But mm-hmm. if we have, if you're considering, you know, Ben as a Skywalker, which he is because he is. he's the son of Han and Leia, mm-hmm. seeing that the story could, that he could be the Skywalker. I still feel like, like, like that Ray, sorry, is somehow tied. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's a very strong possibility that she is Luke's daughter. Yeah, I, I think narratively it makes the most sense and it's the cleanest forward progression if somehow she is a blood relation to Luke Skywalker. And the film, like we've already pointed out, is trying to let you know that as as concretely as possible without actually coming straight out and saying it. Um, like if Luke actually had a line of dialogue that solidified it, I'm curious as to how people would, would have taken that ending that is already very controversial in multiple ways. Uh, I think Luke is probably the easiest way forward, but I will, uh, go ahead and crawl out on a limb here and, and see if I can lay out this idea that Ray could possibly be related to a Kenobi somehow. Like that's going to be the big episode eight twist. So again, just want to clarify it's probably luke's kid but 
There's like a 5% chance, a 5% chance. Maybe maybe she's related to a Kenobi somehow. So we're going to try and walk our way through it. And um, uh, it's not just me, actually. There's a guy named Fed.nl on the NeoGAF forums that I visit fairly frequently who uh, pointed out some interesting details on top of the theory that I was trying to uh, to cook up on my own that meshed so perfectly that I'm just sort of like, we kind of got to at least put it out there. Like, it, it might not work. It might not land. But I at least want to set the pieces up on the chessboard on the off chance we can actually score a checkmate. So this seems to be the Kenobi Kid theory. We know that the production had been, at one point, looking for someone to specifically play a Kenobi relation. Now, at the time that news first came out, and you can hear it on old episodes of this show, uh, that news was attached to casting rumors around, like, Lupita Nyong'o, I believe. But considering people yeah. also thought that Nyong'o was going to be cast as a Sith or something back then, I think it's possible that the Kenobi relation tidbit was misinterpreted in the game of Telephone that the spoiler game always is, and attached to the wrong actress. Now, I know that's kind of a leap, But what isn't a leap is the fact that at multiple points in the production of this film, a Kenobi relative was absolutely on the table. So it was something they were considering. Let's get into that rhyming poetry thing that we love so much about Star Wars. Mike Klimo over there with the Ring Theory, he knows all about that rhyming poetry. Uh, Anyone who's watched a Red Letter Media review, we all know that it rhymes. It all rhymes. This could be applied if she's a Kenobi granddaughter or great niece somehow, some way. And wouldn't it be nice if this was an aspect of a spin-off story about old Ben on Tatooine? Wouldn't that be cool? Anyway, you have then a scenario wherein Luke takes in Ben's offspring, oh. watches over her, basically adopts her as his own, and then when the whole mess with Ben Solo goes down, has to stash her on a backwater planet while he goes into exile to keep her safe from the imminent threat that is his failed apprentice. Which would sort of kind of explain his look at the end of the movie, where he seems sort of uncomprehending, unsure, and not entirely happy, more bittersweet than anything, because he's seen this before. It's his life looping back in on him. Whether she wanted it or not, his failed apprentice has affected her life, and just like Anakin Saber started him on his journey, to becoming a Jedi. Here she is, holding the same saber, a Kenobi once again giving his father's saber to him so she can do the same thing he set out to do all those years ago. And this is where uh, Fed.nl from NeoGAF even highlighted this more. She has that British accent, so that's super easy. <laughs> she uses the patented Kenobi mind trick. Yes. Her first words spoken are some alien language that scares away someone and saves a droid. Yeah. Yeah. She gives Luke his father's lightsaber. She pulls off the mind trick. The first time we ever saw a mind trick in Star Wars, it was a Kenobi doing it. You can hear someone saying Ray, followed by the voice saying, these are your first steps. Obi-Wan Kenobi <sighs> in Star Wars, what does he tell Luke? You have taken your first step into a larger world. Like the way this is you're thinking here. It's, it's lining up. It's lining up. That all said, the theory as I laid it out, I still think it's probably cleaner and easier if it's Luke's kid because then that sets up a possible confrontation in episode nine where you have Luke's daughter versus Leia's son. And I think that can pack a hell of an emotional punch. The question is whether or not you'd be cool with the idea of Luke's daughter not actually being Luke's blood. 
with this Kenobi theory. Well, and I think, I think I think you could count it. I think you could absolutely, and maybe you should absolutely count it, and that could pro- point away towards further adventures of the Skywalker saga not actually having any Skywalkers in it at that point because the Skywalker yeah. we're, we're attached to is an adopted Kenobi. It's something that they've been doing from the beginning is having those adoptive parents and the ties that bind yeah. from adoptive parents are just as strong as blood ties. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, but then then you have a question. I'm curious as to what uh, you guys, as huge fans of, of Clone Wars, uh, would feel about the idea that uh, old Ben, as we know him, at some point, in order for this Kenobi theory to work, uh, got himself a dime piece on the side that we didn't know about. <laughs> well, we saw in the Clone Wars that Obi-Wan did have love yeah. for... Yeah, with Satine. Yeah, Satine, yeah. But would you guys be cool with the idea that... Because um, as that story is presented to us, it's always... it's. It's kind of chased, and Obi-Wan knows that he shouldn't be doing it, and you get that, that vibe of unrequited love, and it ends up feeling like a little bit more powerful because he never gave in and because it was robbed of him uh, before anything good could actually come of it. He wouldn't be the first person to succumb to that. I see that in Obi-Wan's character, and I do not count it as a flaw. Okay. All right. And yeah, Brian? If, if, if we wouldn't have saw that in Clone Wars, I think it'd be harder for me to get there, but totally. Yeah. All right. Brian, what about you? No, I think I'd be okay with that. I could see them doing it a lot of different ways, and it opens the door to having, you know, giving Ewan McGregor an Obi-Wan Kenobi love story spinoff. Ooh, yeah. See, that would be nice. Real quick, before we move on to the next character, because we've only done one. <laughs> Wait, can I, and I want to share a favorite Ray moment that I forgot about. That, that's exact. You are in my head. You are mind-tricking me. You are holding your palm out to my head and pulling memories out like Kylo Ren, Amy. I was just about to ask everybody name their favorite Ray moment. Not when she's rescued, because I don't see it that way, but when she meets up with Finn again on Starkiller Base, and she's so happy that someone came back for her. Mm -hmm. This girl who has been waiting on a planet her entire life alone for her family. The joy, like, an emotion on her face that this guy came back for me. That made me feel all warm and fuzzy. Uh, But before I jump to Brian and Mike, I I did want to ask you, are are you cool with the idea that possibly Ray and Finn might uh, become romantically entangled in later movies? Because it really does seem like they're setting it up in this film. Cute boyfriend? You got a cute boyfriend? (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm on board with it. Okay. Brian, your favorite moment. I love it all. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You told me you told me you were going to put me on the spot with this stuff, but I wasn't prepared to like pick one for anything. Mm -hmm. Um, You got to I really love uh, the the Jedi mind trick scene. But more than that, the moment when she resists Kylo Ren Mm -hmm. and explains to him that his biggest fear is not being able to live up to Darth Vader. That was a very powerful yeah, moment. She sold it very well, mm-hmm. and it gave me the chill. It's giving me the chills just thinking about it again. Yeah. Uh, Mike, what about you? My favorite Ray moment was after they land, and Han Solo is offering her uh, a second mate job, and she looks so happy and perks up like she's never had anything like that in her life. And we find out later that she's already looking at Han Solo like a father figure. Mm-hmm. And you, you want to you offer me a job? And, and, and just the happiness that she has that somebody is seeing something in her and somebody that she respects and yeah. that she – that that happiness that she has that they think of her in that way, like how happy and the joy that she has just from that act from Han Solo really touched me. Yeah, um, I do want to talk real quick about the mind trick because that's that's a scene that um, a lot of people are citing. Um, and uh, That's a scene I didn't like. You didn't I'm like curious the- to hear what you have to say. Why, why didn't you like the mind trick? I liked how it played out. Like it was very entertaining. Yeah. But the idea that she would come up and, with a go-to of, 
I'm going to do a Jedi mind trick, even though I just got really just got confirmation that the Jedi were a real thing. That was a sticking I, point for me, but only a tiny one. But I think that the, she knew that she had it when she'd resisted Kylo Ren yeah, and but, could read his thoughts. But she wouldn't even know about the Jedi the mind Je- trick. Yeah, that's my but, thing. There could be multiple reasons for why she she pulled a Jedi mind trick out her ass because that's basically what she did sitting there in that yeah. chair. Because I don't think there's like an encyclopedia like they have in universe that's like yeah. Jedi no, mind trick. Is no there's no Star Wars? No, no Star Wars data bank. I myself, I like the mind trick, but I was I was willing to roll with the film uh, at that point because it had already very clearly established itself as sort of a Star Wars greatest hits mixtape. So I was like, at some point, the mind trick's going to pop up. Of course, I, I like that they at least made you wait for the mind trick. They gave you that sense that it might not work. Yeah, she, it showed her determination because she kept trying to do it. Yeah. True. All right, so uh, let's go ahead and uh, let's move on to the next character. Let's talk about Finn. Mike, we'll start with you. Finn is so fun and funny. <laughs> if we don't have that character being that way, the movie isn't the same movie. And just the way he... um when he talks to Captain Phasma about he's in control. Mm-hmm. I'm in control, Phasma, and I take it down and <laughs> I mean, I, I love that. I love uh, how he tries to uh, uh, bullcrap his way through. He's part of the resistance. Yeah, this is this is what we look like. I'm part of the resistance. Yeah, part of the resistance. <laughs> I, I just, I'm I'm happy to see Finn and Ray had such a good relationship. I love when Finn's trying to climb up in the cockpit of the Falcon. He's pushing on her head like the brother and sister. Like, get off me, you jerk. Um, I just, I just really liked what Finn brought to the film. I'm concerned about where he's at now Mm -hmm. until we get to the next movie, uh, and what role he will play. Will he just be a resistance member and take on that Han Solo role? Yeah. The movie wouldn't be the same without Finn. All right. Uh, Amy, your thoughts on Finn? I thought Finn was a lot of fun. I really liked the arc that we did see where this was his first battle. Uh, I think he said that at one point, this was first battle after his training and he's like, nope, I'm out. This is not happening. And I respect that. And I loved his dynamic with everyone. I thought he was especially hilarious with Poe Dameron when they escaped the the, the finalizer. finalizer. Thank you. What a name. <laughs> um, I think that whole interaction said so much about like this kid. He's just going to get out. He's going to get the job done. But he has he has a sense of humor about everything, which seems I'm really curious about how that developed, considering that his training sounded pretty intense and almost Almost like he was a clone, like they're treating the stormtroopers as clones without actually having grown them, you know, on Camino or something. I, I, I really, love how when he sees Poe again, uh, when he realizes Poe's alive again, and the, the embrace that they have. And yes. just, uh, so they're short time friends, but these guys are connected. Like mm-hmm. they went through some shh. Yeah. <laughs> what, I, I, what I liked about that sequence is, and I've already seen it on Twitter and Facebook multiple times, the way Abrams framed and shot that, you could almost think that Poe and Finn will end up being romantically entangled by the end of this trilogy. Because they, <laughs> they shot it almost exactly like that two lovers see each other across a sun-dappled field. <laughs> 100%, yeah. <laughs> they go sprinting at each other and embrace longingly. Um, and they did that in the film, and it, it played like gangbusters when they came together. People were just so happy to see those two so happy. And, and Finn is just a very exuberant character uh, overall. Dude does not hide his emotions. He keeps them right there on his sleeve at all times. Uh, Brian, your thoughts on the character? 
having watched it at the press screening and then going through the marathon and watching one through six again beforehand, mm-hmm. it got me thinking a lot about those cyclical returns uh, in the movies. And watching Qui-Gon talk about how in the Republic they would have identified children early to bring them into the Jedi Order, it's not something I ever had a second thought about. It's like, well, of course, you'd want to train them as kids. That makes perfect sense. And there wasn't anything sinister about it. And then you hear them talk about how that's the way it went down in The Force Awakens with the stormtroopers. It feels gross. And, and I like how they're sort of bringing back those ideas that they're indoctrinating them and that maybe that's where the Jedi went wrong too. It, it kind of adds layers mm. to the prequels in ways that I found really interesting, especially I love the name drop of the clone army as well. Mm. Um, and it makes sense that Kylo Ren, a, a Darth Vader acolyte, would have an admiration for the force that helped uh, his grandfather destroy the Jedi. Mm. But Finn as a character he was just fun to watch. Like I could spend a movie with that character. He was funny. He was sincere. He was, he was honest even through his lies. And he was loyal. He was so loyal. Yeah. And it was like my one, my one quibble is only a quibble if I'm wrong about this idea, but it seemed like, no, I can't shoot these villagers. But the second he's in the TIE fighter, it's like, Hey, these guys I've grown up with since birth. I'm just going to blast them like nothing. (laughs) Um, but well, I think there's a reason for that, and I caught it in the editing mm-hmm. when Finn drops down to his knee and his buddy places that bloody handprint on his mask. When he goes to stand up, there's sort of like a, there's a sound effect and a flash, and he's looking around like something hit him, and he has no idea what it was. And I'm wondering if The Force Awakens has as much to do with that moment with Finn as it does with anywhere else, because... Because Kylo Ren notices it also mm-hmm. after Finn has refused to open fire on those villagers. Yeah, and that's a question I wanted to ask uh, you guys because one of the uh, minor controversies is that there might have been uh, what some people are considering a bit of a bait and switch regarding uh, Finn in the marketing and Finn as he plays in the film. And it really doesn't seem like he's altogether force sensitive, especially not in the same way that Ray is, obviously. Like she starts she's on some Dragon Ball stuff at the end there. Like she literally powers <laughs> up in the middle of the fight. Um but uh it doesn't seem like Finn for I mean he's fairly well trained. You can see that he can handle himself in a fight, even if he is consistently uh talking his way in way over his head and then having to talk his way back out and or shoot his way back out, very much like uh Han Solo did in the original trilogy. Uh but you don't really get the sense that he's force sensitive. Do you guys think that that could be a thing that gets uh shifted and changed as we move forward or would you guys be cool with the idea that um he's going to be our hero that isn't in tune with the I'm, force. It, again, it goes back to something Qui-Gon said mm-hmm. in, in Phantom Menace, that nothing happens by accident and that the will of the force is the will of the force and it affects all living things, whether they're sensitive to that or not. And mm-hmm. it's something Han has come to terms with in this movie. And I think the force can have influence in that way with Finn in the same way. And I think we actually just saw the moment where it happened, mm-hmm. whereas Han Solo has that moment off screen when he decides I've got to go back and help the kid blow up that thing. Yeah. Uh, Amy, what do you feel about the possibility that uh, Finn will not be force sensitive going forward? I do not think he's force sensitive and I 
not something I necessarily want to see. Not that we can't have more than one force sensitive person or two force sensitive people as it were Mm -hmm. in the story. But I think it's okay to have kind of our everyday. Yeah. The everyday person we can relate to. Would you consider him the, the point of view character? Cause it's, it's strange because this is very obviously Ray's story. Like the, the, the movie is laid out so that the person who is most affected by the events in the film ends up being Ray more than anyone else. But, but would you consider Finn to be more or less the, the point of view character? He really does seem like he's, he's the in to, uh, this universe, especially for newcomers to, to the movies. What, what would you think? I think that it's interesting that I think in this movie it's easier to it's more subjective. Like it's harder in original trilogy. Like that's Luke's story. Yeah. Period. I think here it depends on who's watching it. I think it could be Ray or that it very well could be Finn. For me it's Ray. Mm-hmm. But I think I think if you can walk into both of their shoes in a way you haven't been able to do in other films. You okay. know what I mean? Yeah. Other Star Wars I, films. I think there's a case could to be made that it's BB-8. <laughs> No, no, seriously, the way the droids were sort of the point of view characters through sure. the classic trilogy and, and through, I mean... Huh? I've always considered it their story. Uh, 3PO and R2 are there for most of the key moments in the prequels, um, and BB-8 is the first character we see. Mm-hmm. And it's his giant eye illuminated by the lights of these ships that we see for the first time, and it's his point of view that brings us into that hut where where Max von Sydow's Lor Santeca uh, is handing Poe Dameron that bit of the map that leads straight to Luke Skywalker. Uh, Mike, I want to ask you this uh, because again, I'm I'm trying to touch on some of the uh, the things that are definitely being talked about as people leave this theater. Were you cool with the idea that uh, Finn could hang with Kylo Ren for as long as he did in that in that wintry forest battle? Well, I think a lot a lot of that had to do with Kylo Ren being injured. Mm-hmm. I mean, he exactly. wasn't at wasn't at the top of his game. I was happy to see that Finn showed some passion. And I mean, he showed passion for Ray. He showed passion for himself to, to live. I think that he, um, he did a, a good job. I didn't expect him to win at all. The, the greatest thing with him and Han Solo, that scene where they're so alike, uh, we'll just use the force. That's not how the force works. I mean, I love that. What I love is that the laugh from Han Solo's exasperation there, that's not how the force works. Uh, was your cold? Yeah, it was so loud that it it stepped all over uh, Chewie grumbling and and Han going, oh, you're cold? (laughs) Like, half the crowd missed that button on the scene, and it's a great button, too, because it's just so casual, and it gives you such uh, an insight into Han and Chewie's everlasting friendship. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, even that part with uh, when the people come on the ship, and he goes, I talk myself out of it all the time. Yes, I do, all the time. (laughs) And Chewie's just, like, nodding. (laughs) Chewie throws a fair amount of shade at Han all throughout this movie. It's pretty funny. We'll talk about Chewie uh, in a little bit because there's actually, and I was surprised about this, there's there's kind of a lot to talk about with regards to Chewie. I was not expecting Chewie to, to have as much of a role uh, as he did. But uh, So, Mike, your favorite Finn moment is uh, him basically dropping on Han that uh, it turns out he, he worked in sanitation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and the, the one big question I had about that scene that I was waiting until today to ask you three your thoughts. So he's taken away as a small child. Yeah. He doesn't know his family. He gets trained pretty much like the clones do uh, to become a stormtrooper. So they're they're given different jobs until they're ready to be a stormtrooper. So he works in sanitation yeah. and then... <laughs> Then he gets because I thought when he said it was his first battle that he was a little old for that to be his first battle. Yeah. He probably sucked at sanitation too. Yeah. <laughs> the, 
yeah, Han Solo's reaction to that. Sanitation. Uh, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, although, I, although I do want to point out, um, because the, the stormtroopers in this movie aren't altogether chumps either. Um, it sort of says something about, uh, their skill level, uh, since we've been away from this galaxy and how seriously the first order, uh, takes their business that, uh, if Finn is supposed to be kind of a subpar stormtrooper, um, the fact that he whoops as much ass as he does sort of tells you that stormtroopers probably can't be joked around with. Although we did absolutely get a shot of Han Solo taking one out in the chest without even looking at him. So, uh, I mean... Obviously, there's still a little bit of cannon fodder, but I do think it's interesting that uh, if Finn is supposed to be considered sort of a mediocre uh, stormtrooper, the fact that he whoops as much ass as he does kind of tells you about how dangerous stormtroopers can be in this universe. Uh, Amy, your your favorite Finn moment? Favorite Finn moment is after he's drinking out of the disgusting water with the Hathabor and on Jakku, and he, which was very funny, and he hears a cry, somebody crying for help. Yeah. And his instinct was not that I'm on the run. I should be hiding. His instinct was to run in. I mean, it turns out Ray doesn't need him because she doesn't need anybody. Yeah. She was taking care of business. But that his instinct was to jump in and help despite his backgrounds and the fact that he's in hiding. I think mm-hmm. that speaks so much to his character. And I really like that moment. Yeah. His reaction to uh, how she handles it was was pretty funny, too. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah he's like, oh, my- well, well, dang. <laughs> My favorite's when he's trying to convince BB-8 to give them the name of the Illumium system. <laughs> For me, I think, um, and it's sort of amazing to, to say this, considering all of the stuff that we do see in this film, uh, I think that's my favorite scene of the, the film, period. That whole back and forth between Ray and Finn and BB-8 as Ray is trying to fix the Falcon. Finn is trying to BS his way through a situation that he probably shouldn't be in. Uh, but of course his big fat heart got him into a problem that he now has to try and solve without hurting anybody's feelings. Um, just th- that entire interaction, that three way interaction is so brilliant um, and moves so fast and felt so much like empire to me. And that was like, I don't know if that was mostly JJ or mostly Kazdan, and I'm sure it was probably both of them symbiotically, like midi chlorians in the Force, working together to bring us a wonderful scene. But oh, like the way she's just pointing at the tape, and he won't get it right. <laughs> the one I'm pointing at, the one right there. The one what I'm pointing. I'm po- that was so good to me. I've been in that situation so many times where you could probably just say that thing, the yellow thing, bring it to me. But you are so frustrated that they can't obviously see what it is you're pointing directly at that you refuse to help them. Just keep po- what I'm pointing at. You see what I'm pointing at. And the entire time this stress is building up on her, it's bouncing off him because all he wants to do is get this soccer ball to... Thumbs up. Yeah, to lie. And yeah, and then the thumbs oh, up, gosh. which is, I think, the biggest pop in the film. Yeah. yeah Kills me okay. every time. Oh, uh, yeah. It's for, so for me, that's like my favorite scene in the entire movie, just the way that it, that whole scene lays out and the acting. Boyega has to sell the idea his future depends on a soccer ball giving him the thumbs up. <laughs> and he makes that real. He makes that absolutely real. I mean, it's it's up there with Mark Hamill talking to uh, a piece of foam rubber at the end of Frank Oz's fist in Empire. It's up there with that. That's crazy to me. Yeah. All right. Uh, so we talked about him a little bit when we were talking about Finn, but we're going to talk about him uh, in depth here because uh, he's, he's huge in this movie. Han Solo. Amy. He's back. He was 100% Han Solo in swagger and style. Mm-hmm. And I think the way they brought the Falcon into the story was tremendous. And that triumphant moment when you see him, I didn't expect it. I didn't know when he was going to show up. 
Mm-hmm. And when you saw him walk into the Falcon, by the time he got to the cockpit and he's put his hands on the chair and like the expression on his face, I was happy to see he didn't lose a beat. It was just like it was right after Return of the Jedi. And I think his story is fascinating. I can absolutely see him getting... I don't need to know exact details about ha- what happened between him and Leia, mm-hmm. but I can absolutely see Han being like, well, this didn't work. So back with Chewie, back to the Falcon, back to my old life. Mm-hmm. I completely buy that. I don't think it's, I'm not disappointed in him, I guess. Yeah. Oh, that, and that I, was, that was a concern for a lot of fans. They were worried that uh, if Han just went back to his old things, that it would feel disappointing, that it would feel like a letdown. I don't think that shows itself in Harrison Ford's performance. Like he sells what he's doing so hard that you just automatically like, of course he would just go back to doing what he did. And of course, yeah, he would. like after what he went through, presuming yeah. whatever Ben did and what, I mean, you can already see what he is now, whatever he did had to be pretty awful or yeah. and to deal with that as a parent and feel like you failed him had to be pretty mm-hmm. terrible to go through. So, yeah, like I, I honestly believe this is maybe the best performance Harrison Ford has turned in, in over a decade. I would I, agree. With I that. would agree with that. Yeah. Uh, Mike, what, what your thoughts on Han Solo? Um, I, I think that he did an absolute amazing job. I'm going to agree with Amy a hundred percent there. Uh, the bickering between him and Chewie, uh, more so than any of the other films was hilarious. Um, my biggest thing with Han Solo in this movie, um, I'll try not to get all teary eyed about it. Um, <laughs> when he, it's, he's with his son on a catwalk mm-hmm. and his son's asking him for help. And then Kylo Ren you know, runs him through and the love that Han Solo still has for his boy, where he gently puts his hand up to his face and touches his face. Um, I don't, I I can't remember a scene in Star Wars that touched me as hard Mm. as that one did. So um, it kind of blows out any kind of thoughts of everything else with Han Solo in this movie for me. (laughs) You knew once he stepped on the catwalk, right? Because I mean, this is, Oh yeah, this is, this is the spoiler that has actually ruined Google for people this weekend. Like, it's weird because it sounds like a huge spoiler without the context. But once you see the film, didn't it seem like it was a foregone conclusion? The instant I, the second I watched the trailer with Han mm-hmm. telling them that the, the Jedi and the Sith were true. Like that's when I knew his days were numbered. And that's when I knew Kylo Ren was going to, to kill him. Okay. I didn't know Kylo Ren was his son until the context of the movie. Yeah. But knowing how Star Wars movies work, that trailer gave away to me that Han was going to die and Kylo Ren was going to kill him because, it, and it made me feel like Luke was going to be gone too because Luke should have been the mentor here. Mm-hmm. And the mentor character, like I said, in Phantom Menace, it was, it was Qui-Gon to Darth Maul's red lightsaber. Yeah. In A New Hope, it was Obi-Wan to Vader's. Mm-hmm. And in this one, Han Solo had to step in because Luke had vanished. Yeah. And he did and took that red lightsaber. I think that sense of fatality actually helped the scene out uh, considerably. I mean, were any of you surprised well, that it ended the way it they, ended? They No. Yeah. Abrams did such a good job trying to make it make you feel like it could have gone the other way. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, agreed. He, he made it feel like he was he was reaching out to him and that he was receptive to it. Well, and they established enough of Ben before that, his kind of wishy, not wishy-washiness, but you know, him talking to like saying, I felt the pull of the light side again. You're like, Oh, Oh, like maybe seeing his dad, maybe this is it. Maybe he's going to turn it around. Well, and and there's an interesting filmmaking trick uh, that's happening at the exact same time. And it was actually set up by Poe Dameron during the the X-Wing run, their, their first bombing run on the oscillator where he actually says the line, as long as we have light, we have a chance, which at, you know, on the surface of it is strategic. 
but it's also speaking directly to the themes of the film. And when Han is out there on that catwalk, there is blue light streaming in behind him. It's illuminating Han Solo. And then there's red light from Starkiller Base that is illuminating Ben. And as that scene goes forward, as the lightsaber is offered, and as Han takes it, the light slowly goes out. And it's when the room is entirely red, and all you can really see is Han's black silhouette. You know what's going to happen just before it happens. And I think that was really clever and one of the better bits of filmmaking uh, in this film. We've talked about Han Solo's um, Harrison Ford wanting to be ended in Return of the Jedi. Mm -hmm. So um, while I did not know any spoilers or didn't uh, try to stay away from all those things, I I did have that feeling that that he was going to die in this movie. Mm -hmm. Um, One of those reasons, uh, not because Brian puts forth uh, a great argument for him dying in a movie, uh, was just the way he handled all the press junkets. And he just looked... (laughs) really happy like, like, oh, I, no wonder I don't, I don't have to do another three yeah. movies of this i'm, I'm done done with this, this. <laughs> um all right I, I do you guys have a favorite uh han solo moment i'm gonna pull brian young and i'm gonna say every moment with han in this movie was my favorite han solo mo- <laughs> moment I, and the thing is is like i i have loved han solo since i'm a little kid yeah but i've he's never been my absolute favorite character but in everything that harrison ford did in this movie as han solo mm-hmm. hit the mark 100 percent for me for me, I want to say it's when he shouts Ben's name. Yeah. I think that moment God. was riveting. And I was waiting for it. Watching it the first time, I literally had my breath held waiting for him to say it because I knew he was going to. Yeah. And what that name was was going to mean a lot. But I didn't know I didn't know if it was going to be Jason. I didn't know if it was going to be Anakin. I didn't know if it was going to be I had no idea. When he said Ben it all clicked and it made sense and it made it that much more heartbreaking. Well, and, and what adds to that heartbreak, someone actually pointed this out to me, Leia never met Ben Kenobi. Han Solo hung out with that dude. Yeah. So that means Han Solo, that old softy, when it was time to name his firstborn, he thought back to old Ben. Like that, that adds a little bit of extra. I mean, the, the cynic... And he mentions it flat out. He says it when that hollow projection is up from BB-8. Uh, he mentions, you know, yes, I thought it was all mumbo-jumbo, and I believe, and I, I know that it's real now. He knew that it was real so much that he named his firstborn after the guy that he was trying to hustle for a couple extra credits back on Mosisley. <laughs> well, that's how far he came. And I think that and the, the fact that he came that far and the child that he named after Ben Kenobi is the child that ultimately ended him. Like that adds a little extra twist of the knife to your heart. If, if I had to pick a scene, not that one though, it yeah. would be with when he's uh, negotiating with the Guavian death gang and mm-hmm. conjure. <laughs> Were you guys okay with that scene? That seemed to me. And I, and I thought uh, from back in the spoiler days, like that scene where the freighter sucks up the millennium Falcon was going to maybe be the shakiest. I know why you need it there, but it always seemed like it was maybe going to be the shakiest in terms of getting our characters from uh, point B to point C uh, along the plot. Were you guys all right with that scene? I loved it. I thought the Wrath Tars were awesome. I thought the stakes were built right. I thought the introduction to Han and Chewie Mm -hmm. was perfect. I I think how they reacted, it's just like, oh, you've got my ship? Great. Get the hell out. Chewie, put him in a pod. Mm. You know, and they had to explain it. And the only thing that stops him is Luke's name. Yeah, that's the only thing. And the way the gangs kind of came up and built that tension, that was like pure Lawrence Kasdan. I think Kasdan was writing Han 
not just as Han, but as a hybrid of Han and Indy. Indy, mm. yeah. <laughs> um, and he had some moments too, like of Indy, like uh, when when he's saving Finn from that uh, stormtrooper with the the electro pole thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, he shoots him the way he shoots the swordsman and raiders. Um, with Chewie's bowcaster, which he really likes, apparently. <laughs> they went, um, they went out of their way to emphasize that bowcaster is awesome. Yeah, yeah, we'll get into that later. There's some stuff um, we need to talk about. But, <laughs> but no, I I loved the interaction between them and Chewie, and like seriously, that cutaway of Chewie when Han's like, "Have I never delivered before for you boys?" And the ones like. Yeah, and the other one's like twice, and then Chewie's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah that's the way it goes. <laughs> Shrug. <laughs> I, I personally, I like the scene. I think it added a lot to it. The only thing I would say about that whole scene that was kind of weird for me. So what was the name of the other group? The Conja Club? Conja, Conja Club. Club and the Guavian yeah. Death Gang. So Conja Club, once I heard that name, and then all the action is going on with the monsters tearing them all apart, all I heard was Karma Chameleon <laughs> as the soundtrack song while that was all That's going Culture on. Club, not Conja Club. I know, but, but. That's, all I could, that's all I could think of in my head. That guy's voice sounded awesome. Oh, the, the leader of Conja Club? Yeah, those were the guys from The Raid. Um, that's right. That's right. Yeah, those were the guys from the raid. And if there's uh, if there's something that I have to admit is a little disappointing, it's that you got the guys from the raid in that scene. There was no fight scene. Yeah, <laughs> you I, had the guys from was, the raid, and they ran away from the Langoliers, basically, and got I eaten loved by them. That moment when Han punches that one in the face, though, and then feeds him to Throws the Tar. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. you even get a little bit of Return of the Jedi in there. Um, I mentioned earlier that I think this movie is more or less a, a greatest hits mixtape of the entire original trilogy, and you get a little bit of Return of the Jedi in there. One of those Tars burps up a boot. Yep, it's a quick little moment because and then boot falls out, and I was like, yep. Return of the Jedi. There we are. We got that moment. Check it off the list. <laughs> Greatest hits. We're moving well, on to the next track. What's funny about those is so they, they tear everybody up quickly. Mm-hmm. And that Han Solo said that when Finn asked him how he got him, and he says, well, my crew was bigger at one point. That was, <laughs> that was pretty funny. <laughs> Actually, I, let me let me expand a little bit on the original trilogy mixtape thing, because one of the, the immediate criticisms I'm hearing, um, and it's not necessarily without merit, uh, is that this is more or less a remake of A New Hope. Um, I don't think that it's just a straight up remake of Star Wars, though. I really don't. It really it opens like Star Wars. It has a middle like Empire and it ends like Jedi. Now, there are elements from all three sort of swapped and moved around as needed, like the the middle section of the film. Uh, plot wise feels like Empire, but it looks like Star Wars. Um, the end of the film plot wise plays like Return of the Jedi, but it looks like the Empire Strikes Back. But I mean, in the middle of the film, like the, the opening is so obviously Star Wars that like you can't even argue it. Yeah, that's straight up 1977. You get to the middle of the film and you meet a tiny wise sage strong in the force who says weird, funny things. And then our hero descends into a hole, has a vision and then gets wrecked by the person she just had a vision about. Like, that's the middle of Empire to me. And then there's a run on a giant super weapon that makes the first Death Star look like like a baby a toy. A golf ball. A yeah. marble, yeah. Featuring Han Solo leading a small strike team to take out the shields so an attack run can begin. An attack run that ends with the hero ship flying into a superstructure, blowing it to hell, and then flying back out again while a climactic lightsaber battle takes place among three people. And that's the end of Jedi. So, I mean, yeah, you can take moments from Jedi and Empire and scatter them around, and the whole thing sort of does have a very similar tone and thrust as Star Wars. 
but it really does start like Star Wars, middle like Empire, and like Jedi. I, I don't think it's as simple as just saying it's a remake of Star Wars. No, it's a remake of the entire original trilogy in one film. That's how it feels to me. I want but, that symmetry. That's yeah, like mm-hmm. expect they, and is satisfying. I, I think a lot of people might have missed this, and I know I didn't catch it until the uh, the second viewing. Uh, Starkiller Base doesn't so much blow up as it becomes another sun. It yeah. sucks all the energy from that one sun into itself, and then it never got the shot off. So when the planet destabilizes, it doesn't explode. It just becomes the sun that is now inside of it. Well, um, help me out with this, because this is my only issue with, with Starkiller Base. Yeah. Once it used up all the energy from the sun, if it would have had that shot... They couldn't get the planet. It was I think, a dead weapon. Yeah. Well, and, and also, well, I mean, I, I think it's possible. Like, we didn't get a really good look at Starkiller Base. And that was one of the, uh, the whole Starkiller Base and the politics, uh, behind the, the, the Republic, the resistance and the First Order kind of got glossed over. And I think yeah, it's I, a little vague. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's more than a little. I think it's because when they were trying to trim this movie down from two and a half hours to two hours and 15 minutes, um, I think they cut a little too close to the bone. There's a lot of stuff in there that I think was initially explained and made a little bit more apparent. And that would have added to, you know, the sense of tension rising, uh, in the finale of the film that I think ended up just sort of hitting the floor. I, I think, I think that's something that, uh, George Lucas has proved slightly better at than Abrams. Oh yeah. Um, as far as the editing and being able to quickly throw out information to which you're able to infer, mm-hmm. A lot of things. things. Like, we didn't know really much about Alderaan at all, but we knew that it was important to Leia. We knew why it was important to the rest of the Rebellion, and that allowed us to feel the punch of it dying, even though we had only been introduced to the word Alderaan, like, what, like, a minute, two minutes before it blew up? We don't even learn the name of the Hosnian system until... After it's dead. Yeah, 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 exactly. People are, like, asking me after, like, was that Coruscant? And I'm like, Yeah, I heard Coruscant. And then I I assumed the first time I saw it that it was Mm Shangri-La, because that is where they positioned the new capital of the New Republic uh, in Aftermath. Yeah. So yeah. I thought it was like, well, Mon Mothma's home planet's gone. So this Hosnian system's like brand new as far as I know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would have just liked more context for that. I know everybody complained about the politics and the prequels and, the, and, and sometimes yeah. in the classic trilogy, but I think George Lucas was better at explaining how all that worked than Abrams was. No, yeah, it's, it's definitely one of the, uh, the funnier ironies uh, in hearing the reaction in that uh, one of the bigger complaints about the prequels is that it was so very heavily focused on political machinations and uh, intrigue. Um, and this movie actually loses a little bit of impact in its finale because J.J. Abrams and Lawrence Kasdan, when they wrote it, and then J.J. Abrams, when he went in and edited it, short shrifted the political machinations to the point where people are just sort of confused as to why people are fighting and what it means when the big red laser comes shooting out of the planet that may or may not be able to move around once it sucks up a sun like nobody actually knows it's a little confusing too and and so i'm going to explain what i think i got out of what the political situation in the galaxy was yes please do um and correct me if i'm wrong or tell me if you guys think you had another idea I will. but it seems like the new republic <laughs> yes established a fleet that was for defense completely mm-hmm. and they wanted to have no part in aggressive actions for fear of seeming like the old empire right so they send leia away and say we'll secretly covertly not in public support you in fighting these terrorists. So basically this is the republic selling arms to, you know, Afghanistan to fight Russia. That is essentially how I see it. 
I believe that you're exactly right. The, and the, em- so, the Empire crawled out into the Outer Rim somewhere, licked its wounds, uh, became severely radicalized, uh, as you can see via the Knights of Ren, Kylo, Snoke, um, and Hux, uh, especially. We're not really going to talk about Hux because he's not much of a character, except that uh, he is like 50 million Nazis poured into Donald Gleason's body and allowed to scream uh, <laughs> but uh like and you, roll his r's beautifully oh yeah but i mean yes. like young, so he had to completely overdo it yeah. yeah um and what happens in this film and i don't think it's really set up you sort of have to like piece it together after the fact because all you get are like stray lines of dialogue that aren't even really yeah. connected to each other thanks to the edit in that scene where all the planets blew up is that the entire hosnian system was gone which means there's no more government so far as the republic is concerned and the fleet that was protecting the government also got wiped. So the only thing that can now fight the First Order is Leia's resistance, which apparently, after taking out Starkiller Base and turning it into a sun, consists of 12 X-Wings and the Millennium Falcon. Well, the upshot, a lot of the First Order's forces seem to be on Starkiller Base, so hopefully True. they're injured just well, as badly. And it, mm-hmm. it seems like Star, like uh, not Starkiller, the First Order only has the finalizer. That seems like it's their only flagship. Well, the only thing I didn't buy about Starkiller Base, though, uh, in 30 years from the end of uh, Return of the Jedi to this to The Force Awakens, th- that's a pretty hefty feat yeah. to, to build something that big with the amount of people that they had. So that was my one well, thing with that. that they they did. I mean, at the end of Aftermath, there is that Imperial fleet. What little there is of it left moves out of the known galaxy to recuperate and trust in the dark side of the force. And maybe, maybe they found some other species. You know, they don't seem to be above enslaving people. Yeah. yeah. And maybe yeah. they enslaved a number of top minds yeah. to, uh, to come up with it. Who? I'm not saying it's completely top unrealistic. It's just, they didn't really <laughs> explain it too good. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the, the back half of the film definitely starts to suffer from, uh, from editing problems as it's hurtling along towards its finale. I do think they cut a little too close to the bone. And that's what makes uh, the novelization by Alan Dean Foster, especially if you listen to it on audiobook, um, a little bit more important. Because I think a lot of the deleted scenes that people are absolutely asking for, I also think it's very funny that people are leaving the theater and cannot wait for a special edition. <laughs> I mean, was, absolutely, somebody, yeah. somebody absolutely emailed me that immediately, immediately like man i wanted this movie to be a half an hour longer i hope they put out a director's cut and i'm like you're so you probably complain? yeah so you can all complain about all the new stuff they added like have you what, seen how what, this works with what's, what's funny is that they always use the term director's cut and every time it has popped up in any conversation i've had online i oh you mean a special, special edition? edition yeah dun 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 but uh a lot of those deleted scenes that i think you want on the blu-ray uh and you might want reincorporated into a special edition they're there in the novelization they uh, are i'm about 30 pages in and already mm-hmm. there's stuff i wanted filled in that's there yeah um amy we never actually got to you about uh, your favorite han scene oh wow we didn't that's right favorite yeah. han i think it was the little moments it was just all the lines like I never asked myself if things are possible until after I've done them. Like it's so Han Solo. And there were many moments like that, you know, before I met Ahsoka Tano, he was my favorite Star Wars character. So him and Ahsoka are kind of side by side for me. And it was delightful to see him kind of get again, caught back up in the fight, despite his best intentions to stay out of it. All right. So, uh, we talked about the man. Let's talk about his kid screwing everything up. Ben Solo slash Kylo Ren. Mike. Oh, Okay, so <laughs> where do I go with Kylo Ren? Um, in the theater, 
when they mentioned that it was Han's son. Uh, that was one one gigantic reveal for me that I was not expecting. Mm. Vader did bad things, but Vader, <laughs> to me, was not evil. Anakin Skywalker was a teenager. He was a brat. He had uh, anger issues. Kylo Ren, after seeing what he does to his own father, is pure evil. Um, He's irredeemable to you. Yes, even after saying uh, to Vader's helmet that uh, I'm feeling the pull of the light and please show me the darkness again. Um, I did love his hissy fits in the movie where he pulls out his <laughs> saber and destroys all the, the electronics and then uh, anything else. Yeah. Just like, and I, I love, I love that line. I also, again, when Ray, when Ray uh, gets out and the stormtroopers are coming down the hall and hears him freaking out and they turn around and go the other way. Yeah. I, I really like that too. Um, Kylo Ren, because I do have that pull to dark side characters because mm-hmm. I want to, I want to understand them. I, I'm fascinated with that. Um, it's going to take a while and it's going to take a lot of viewings of this movie for, to real and hearing what you guys think for me to kind of understand Kylo Ren better than I, than mm-hmm. I think I do. Yeah. But, um, but you think, you think absolutely he's irredeemable. Like you, no. if they tried to lay down a redemption track for, for Ben here at the end of the film, would that sound horrible to you or do you think you might be able to roll with it no i i i, I just think this guy got to go down i don't i don't yeah. see any kind of redeeming from him no he's got to go down he's got to go uh amy your your thoughts on kylo i'm very impressed with kylo ren in the way that he is so different from a bad guy in star wars that we've encountered before he's messy mm. he's very temperamental in a way even stronger than darth vader was darth vader always felt a little clinical to me i guess yeah yeah and Kylo Ren is just a hot mess with <laughs> anger issues, yeah. I think. And I think he's weak-minded, or he was. He's very He's been manipulated by Snoke, and I think he does still have hope. I think that it's going to be a hard road to get him to a place where I believe he deserves redemption. Mm-hmm. But I've seen enough conflict in him to know that I think the evil's winning. But I think his heart is still there, and I think it's possible for him to be brought back. But I overall, I just enjoy that... This is kind of a Darth Vader fanboy who has taken his feelings and manifested them in even in a way that Darth Vader, you know, as we saw him at the end, would not be okay with. And I think that it's interesting that he's forgotten. I'm sure somebody has told him that at the end, you know, he saved his son's life. I'm sure Luke told him or that came up at some point during the training. So I find it fascinating that he's just focused on the bad parts of Vader and Vader I look had, forward to seeing what happens next. Vader had nowhere to go. Uh, once he did everything that the emperor wanted him to do, he lost everyone. He had nowhere else to go. And he felt that tied to the emperor because that's all he had left. And with Kylo Ren, like he was, he's had a supportive family. He had his uncle Luke trying to train him as a Jedi. What damage does Kylo Ren or Ben Solo have that he was so easily manipulated by by Snoke that mm-hmm. that that's what he became. Like he turned his back on everyone who still loves him well, and, and, and wants to bring him back. And here's the thing: like the film sort of suggests that he wasn't necessarily 100 percent manipulated by Snoke. And it's a, it's another sort of situation where you kind of have to piece it together from uh, from the the plot points that aren't necessarily really strongly connected, but the lines of dialogue are there and the performances are there. But the film seems to be suggesting that uh, Han and Leia knew that he was breaking bad before he broke. The first time we hear about 
Luke's self-imposed exile is from Han on the Falcon. And we don't know that Kylo is his kid yet, but Han tells us that the reason Luke bailed out was because a pupil of his at a new Jedi temple betrayed Luke Skywalker and killed everybody at that temple. And it messed Luke up. He went away. He exiled himself. So we don't know that that's Ben yet. Well, and even later when Han and Leia are talking, they say that, didn't I, I kind of glean that they essentially sent him off to Luke. Yes. To, they, because they sense like there's darkness in you. We're going to, there's too Luke's mu- going to make it all better. Yeah. Like Han says, there's too much Vader in him. And Leia confirms that, yes, there was. And that's why they sent him to Luke. They sent him away. And that's what ruined it for all three of them. It ruined Luke. It basically estranged Han and Leia. So you sort of get the sense that what happened is he was already going dark. They tried to save him. It was too late. Um, and at some point, while being trained by Luke, he hooked up with Snoke and like probably gave himself fully to whatever snake oil Snoke was selling. And that's where it all went to hell. But it really why because he wanted to be Darth Vader. He wanted to be as strong as Darth Vader. Have no idea why he did it. But that's 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 one of the more interesting elements of Kylo Ren to me is that there's this element of chaos and unnecessary tragedy. Like like you said with Darth Vader, the tragedy seemed necessary. Or at least Lucas put it in a position that you could understand why Anakin himself felt it was necessary. But a lot of the conflict within Kylo Ren is him being shown a way out and him refusing to take it just yeah. out of out of sheer malice he refuses to take those ways out and he considers those ways out weakness and that's interesting because we're seeing a tragic character who keeps despite all the universe's best efforts refusing to go good like they keep offering chances for him and he keeps like no not going to do it I'm yeah, going to stay evil. I'm going to stay bad. And I think that's a very interesting dilemma for this film. Like, I remember seeing in the trailer and on the trailer council feeling like he was coming off as a Patrick Bateman kind of character. And I think the film actually plays into that. He's he's just weird. He's creepy. He's not necessarily scary. Like Mike said, those tantrums that he throws come off like tantrums. And the way people react to him, they're just sort of like, I mean... That one, that one general uh, from the First Order doesn't exactly roll his eyes. He's ab- absolutely scared to be in the room with him. But everyone just seems like, yeah, Kylo's going to be a hot mess, and Kylo's going to cry, and he's probably going to wreck like five or six computers. Um, just wait him out. He'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> like that's sort of the sense you get with him. He's not necessarily scary, but he's really creepy. And there's, so what is, there's something what? broken in his head about him, and I don't think we've and gotten his, a villain like that before. I'll say in his Force powers like the way they've developed and whether some of that parent or whether he's specifically trained to be able to pull information out and paralyze people the way he does. I think that's also intriguing and not really something we've seen before to this degree. So one of the things that kept me up last night thinking about the movie, he comes from his blood family. The people he comes from are legends. Mm -hmm. They're people that are hard to live up to. His dad is Han Solo. His mom's Princess Leia. His grandfather is Darth Vader. His uncle is Luke Skywalker. These are people that pretty much no matter what he does, if he stays on the light side, he's never going to overcome who he is from and who what his family has done. So if he's one of those people that is an egotist and he wants to um, wants to make a name for himself, he can't really be good and fight and make a name for himself. Whereas if he could throw a wrench into everybody's plans and go completely against his family and his will and his want to be as strong as his grandfather. But I, I 
I could see that's ah. how he got to that, but it's that's still an interesting a, thought, Mike. Yeah. It's still a, it, it drives me nuts. Last night it kept me up for a while. I did like how uh, Amy pointed out, and this is something that I think comes into play uh, in the end battle a little bit as well. Um, that he's got some very interesting force powers, but it also seems like he's not necessarily been testing himself or those powers. Like he learned some cool tricks, and he's basically just been spamming those tricks to appear like more of a badass than he really is. Like, the fact he can pull memories out of people's heads like that is crazy. That's weird. We've never seen that in a Star Wars well, movie we've, before. Well, we've seen a li- we've seen hints of it. Um, I haven't um, seen that in a Star Wars movie before. When Vader pulls out the information from Luke that his sister's, that he has a twin sister. Yeah, but not, not to this extent. No, not no, like- I'm not saying to this extent, but I think it's hinted at. Well, kind of. I mean, but that's also like a familial relation. Like, Luke is sitting there trying as hard as he can not to betray his sister, which, of course, is going to allow uh, his dad to go, huh, oh, oh, I got it. But this is Kylo Ren, like, walking up to Poe Dameron and saying, like, I know you've got memories in there. I'm going to pull them out with my hand. And then he does it. Uh, the fact that he can pause you. Like, I don't know what what his costume is made out of, mostly, but I'm betting that right hand is a power glove because he can just put pe- he can put people on pause. Well, dude. not just people though. He did that with the blaster shot for the whole scene. Yeah, that shot from the blaster stayed there until he walked away and was done with it being there. And then it blew that it blew up blew up the thing. Yeah, but you, I've never seen I've never seen that in Star Wars before. That's mm-hmm. a pretty interesting trick. But he's also not altogether great with a lightsaber. Like he learned those two really cool tricks. Um, but I don't think he's been training with how to fight people uh, because why Finn did so well against him because Finn was trained well and also I think that maybe he didn't get that far in his training with Luke because if you look at that lightsaber it looks so Mm -hmm. homemade and rough in a way that we haven't seen so maybe he didn't get that far with Luke so he's just kind of figured it out on his own well and that's the lightsaber that they had in the vision though with him and the Knights of Ren and that field of bodies Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't really see the full impact of how many bodies there were in that reigning field until I saw the IMAX and there's a lot they killed a lot of people there and I think I get the impression that Ray is the stand in for Luke yeah, that that vision is going to be interpreted multiple ways uh, for for a very long time. People are going to try and pull a lot of info out of that. And I th- I think it's cool because there's a lot of info in there. There's a lot of things to sort of chew on uh, in that vision. I also think it's worth mentioning because a lot of people are are thinking that it's weird that that Ray was able to power up and take him out, and that Finn was able to you know get a shot across his arm. Uh, keep in mind, uh, he just killed his father. He's obviously sort of screwed up by this. I don't think it actually did for him what he thought it was going to do. It just made him feel worse and crappier. Um, and and this is one of the coolest moments in the film to me, honestly. Uh, and I think Chewie's big moment, really. It shows how, how much of a badass Chewie is. He just took a shot from that bowcaster straight to his side. And this is what I love about that sequence. It took me a while to really wrap my head around how cool it was. Think about this. Han and Chewie are best friends. Absolutely best friends. There is no tighter friendship. Bam. Like he's, he's yes. Uncle Chewie. Yeah, he's Uncle Chewie. Like Chewie probably held Ben shortly after he was born. Chewie probably helped babysit Ben. They probably played. Like Ben probably got piggyback rides on Chewie's back. Uh, he's changed some diapers. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, he loved that kid almost as much as Han Solo. As soon as Chewie got the shot, he emptied it into him. He didn't blink. Well, he didn't hesitate. Like, he let out a howl, and as soon as he got the shot, he put it into that kid. I think it's even more layered than that, too, though, where, yeah. like, he didn't take a killing shot. 
he put it in his side, and I think he did it purposely because the next five shots oh, yeah. Chewie shots, took yeah. were all headshots on stormtroopers. Oh yeah, he just messed everybody up. He went on a berserker rage, and then he blew up everything. <laughs> like Which they even Han Solo made. I have to lean into Brian to say this. Han Solo even made a point to say earlier in the film how much he likes this weapon, like how how powerful it is, how accurate it is, mm-hmm. and then Chewie doesn't kill Kylo Ren. He just damages him a little bit. Well, yeah, it, it tells you something about how strong Kylo Ren really is because we obviously that gun has been upgraded since the original trilogy because it didn't do that in any of the other movies. Um, but like we see this gun send people about 15 feet midair when it touches yeah. you. Like it's essentially the poom poom gun from the expendables. <laughs> That's essentially what it is. Um, and he puts one directly into Kylo Ren the instant he has a shot uh, and Kylo stays standing. So Kylo's that's, the only one who falls forward. Everybody else flies back. Flies back. Yeah. yeah so, I mean, right. that that does tell you something about what Kylo Ren is trying to deal with. Like, he's punching that wound. And I think he's punching yeah. it to sort of keep the rage flowing so he can tap into it. But it's, the it's adrenaline going, yeah. Yeah, but I don't, think, I don't think it's working the way he wants it to. Nothing is working the way he wants it to. Like, he kills his dad, and I think he thought that was going to be his path towards total darkness and that there's no way Lord Snoke... Uh, couldn't take him to the promised land that he's going for after that. But he kills his dad, and then he's just empty. Well, it all goes against that ego, I that love- huge ego that he has, mm-hmm. and, and things aren't going his way, yeah. and he actually fails because it's not going his way. Yeah, and when- I, love, I love how that scene reverses the scene in Empire 2, though, where Han has that I am your father moment. He doesn't say that specifically, although some of his lines do echo Vader's mm-hmm. directly, You know, even, even when he says, like, you know it's true. But Han offers him the same offer Vader offers Luke, like, come away with us. Mm-hmm. We can make this better. It's okay. And where Luke, Luke's reaction was to jump off of the gantry. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather Ky- be dead. Thanks. Kylo's was to kill his father. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, uh, no, I really, I really love the relationship it has with the other movies. Now, yeah. now Kylo, or Ben Solo, asks his father for his help. Does Han Solo know that that's his death? Does he just take it? This is what he needs. I'm his father. I'm going to give him what I, he wants. You know, I wonder, I think that's the line, the reason they gave the guy in the Gawavian death gang the line that, like, you don't have anyone left to swindle. Mm-hmm. Because it's like, this is literally Han knows he's at the end of his rope no matter what. He's not even good at the one thing he used to be good at anymore. Yeah. It's tough. What about that battle with uh with Ray though? Like how are you guys feeling how that played out? Like I it feels to me like he's got her against the edge of that cliff and his you need a teacher is a last gasp. That's desperate. Like he knows he could lose this. You know, he well, makes just a ha- like Vader, he wants Luke on his side so they could wor- rule together. Yeah, but he, Vader sort of had a plan. This felt like a a, a weak ass Hail Mary. Like I don't yeah, think he had nowhere else to go with. Yeah, because look at the competition that already exists between him and Hux. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want somebody else there that Snoke could see as better than him, as more powerful than him. Yeah. So I think it was what Bobby says, just kind of a, well, we'll try this. <laughs> I can teach you. And that moment is really interesting because she, she basically just closes her eyes and powers up like Dragon Ball, right? She um, Qui-Gon's it, man. But I think, and I was talking about the, the editing cutting too close to home a little bit. I think this moment falls victim to that. Like, We'll talk about Maz Kanata a little bit right now, as a matter of fact. There are moments when she shows up, and she just sort of drops out of the film entirely. She doesn't get an exit. She just ceases to exist after she tells... uh, destroyed her whole compound. Yeah, but I mean, like, yeah, we know there was a scene at some point where she goes to the Resistance base because she hands 
a lightsaber to Leia. And that scene's not in the movie. There yeah. are uh, lines of dialogue that we heard in the trailers that aren't in this movie. I think that discussion around the table went for a little bit longer. Um, and that, that stuff about the force is calling to you, just let it in. That's not in the movie. She told Ray that at some point, but it got cut out probably for time. They felt they didn't need it. They needed the movie to rush along to make sure that it got under that two hours and 15 minutes. I would not be surprised if when they shot that, when they filmed that, and even when they got down to editing it, when Ray closes her eyes, she hears Maz Kanata telling her the force is calling to you, let it in. Like, if you can imagine taking that line of dialogue, throwing a little bit of reverb on it, and then layering Perfect. that over her yeah. closing her eyes, I it fits there perfectly. I, I guarantee kind of you it does. I expected it, actually, because since I saw that trailer, I was I was waiting for that line. Mm-hmm. Kind of, you know, you're like, oh, this has to, maybe this is happening. Yeah. And I thought about it at that point. I'm like, oh, she's it was, just, okay. And in a film that is so, you know, very precious about the Star Wars moments that it's, you know, sort of remixing, putting a new spin on, reinterpreting... The one thing they didn't get to was the voice of the old wise sage ringing in your head as you're about to pull off the climactic victory. Use the force, Luke. Let go, Luke. You got Ben echoing in his head. The force will be with you always. You didn't have that with Ray. And I was wondering if maybe because of the edits, we lost a little bit of a Maz Kanata magic moment at the end there during that duel. I'm wondering if that's the case. What did you guys think of Maz, by the way, before we uh, get back to... uh, to Kylo and our favorite uh, Kylo moments. I loved Maz. I thought her introduction was perfect, and I think she has my like one of my two favorite lines in the movie. Yeah, uh, which was that uh, "Where's my boyfriend?" I like that Wookiee. I, I like <laughs> yeah, I I thought that her voice was perfect. I yeah. think that her appearance was perfect. She's small and unassuming, but she has all those years of uh, experience. She's behind her. I have a side tangent for you guys. Yes, sorry. Um. You know when Kylo is torturing Ray or trying to and failing, mm-hmm. and he says, "I see the ocean, mm-hmm. yeah. I see the island." That's and, him and seeing. End with Luke and the island. That's. I think that's her having seen that in her dreams yeah, before. The force was already before. telling okay. her where Luke was. Luke was yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I that, didn't pick up on that till my third viewing. So yeah, was, a, a lot. A lot of people didn't know why. He, you know, because she's never seen green before. It's yeah. fairly obvious. So far as she knows, she's never seen green before. Or, or she, that much water either. Yeah. I loved, I loved Luke's choice of hiding spot too, right? <laughs> yeah. For a guy who grew up in the desert, mm-hmm. he chooses a small island where it's kind of like the, the, the mix between, it's like the difference between Tatooine and Dagobah. Mm-hmm. But Amy, it took me to the third viewing until I caught that too. Yeah. Like she, she's seen it. She doesn't know she's seen it. And we don't know that she's seen it. And Kylo has no idea what the hell's going on at all. Um, yeah, because he's looking for him and he has the answer right there from Ray's head. Yeah, and he didn't know that he yeah. pulled it out of her. And then she throws it back in his face like, you're not going to be as strong as Darth Vader. And, oh, my goodness. <laughs> everything that I've done is so stupid. But if I start to entertain the idea that everything I've done has been so stupid, I will be even further humiliated than I already am. And I cannot bear that. He's such a chump. He is such a greasy little chump. I I, I love it though. I I love the sort of whiny, ineffectual Patch, Patrick Bateman esque characterization. I, I think that's super I love, interesting. It's fascinating. I, I love his touchstones to Hayden Christensen too. To yeah. be honest, um, he has basically Hayden Christensen's hair if it had the consistency of Han Solo, and the way he shouts "traitor" at Finn is like an exact, yeah. an exact replica of. Anakin shouting liar. Well, the fact that he's absolutely uh, Anakin 2.0, I think, is 
100% intentional. I would not be surprised if uh, a lot of Adam Driver's direction consisted of J.J. Abrams going, um, all right, I want you to watch Revenge of the Sith. Take note of all the things Christensen does uh, effectively in this film um, and then double that. <laughs> Add your own spin to it, but I want you to be this 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 greasy, slimy, mean-spirited, cowardly ass. I want you Petulant to do that. child. Yeah, please, please figure that I out. Because that took us off topic, and I, I, I really am interested in what you think. What did you think of Moss? Uh, I... I liked her. Um, I kind of wish that she had gotten uh, more of an exit. I felt I felt like that, that was one of the bigger problems with the film is that as it hurtled towards the end and uh, the edits started to cut it too close to the bone, we started losing people. They just dropped off of the, the face of the, of the film. Yeah, like I have no idea what happened to Maz Kanata. I know because of the trailer she was supposed to have gone to the resistance base and that she's okay there on the resistance base. But if you're not, you know, seriously paying attention to the marketing of this film, for all you know, Maz Kanata died on Takadana uh, after the First Order came and knocked her temple down. We just don't well, see if her. You're, if you're not paying attention to the marketing, you have no idea to call it Takadana, though. Exactly. But you, you know what I'm saying. Uh, same with uh, sa- same with Hux. Like Phasma? We, yeah, Phasma. Well, let, let's go ahead and talk about Phasma real quick. Throw in the garbage compactor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like a lot of people just assume that Phasma's dead. We know she's coming back for episode yeah. eight because she's we've heard dead. Kathleen Kennedy uh, mention it, but a lot of people think she's dead now because Starkiller Base turned into a sun and we never checked back with Phasma at all. Like imagine if Star Wars ends and we don't get that cut back to Vader for all of three seconds, riding himself in his ship and flying off into the blackness of space. If we don't get that scene... You have it hanging, right? Yeah, it, it, closure. it wouldn't feel right. It absolutely would not feel right. That happens to four semi-important characters in this film. It happens to Maz, it happens to Hux, it happens to Phasma, and it happens to Kylo. We have no idea if any of them actually got off that well, planet. I think what they need is a scene where Hux comes out and says, alert our Star Destroyer to prepare for our <laughs> yeah, arrival. But, but Snoke tells Hux to bring Kylo. To yeah, I know, Kylo. but then the planet explodes and we don't sit like, did he have time? We like, don't see his ship like leave the... Yeah, like, and, and, and you don't need like... you don't. Yeah, you don't need we, a whole scene. You just need like, we're seeing ties fly off and, and uh, First Order officers like, just go to the ships! Like, Hux well, is gone! Like, at that point, all you need is a cut to the interior of a TIE fighter and Phasma flipping a switch and we're like, okay, she got away. We're good. Not even that. I mean, they could have cut to the medical center aboard the finalizer, right? Yeah. In all the Star Wars movies, like in Empire, uh, in, in Empire specifically, at the end, they cut to Vader on the bridge of the, the Star Destroyer. Like, if they would have cut to that, we would have understood that he got away and yeah. that was it. We needed one shot. Mm-hmm. And there were a couple shots that didn't need to be there that kind of broke the the storytelling for me like that beautiful shot of the tie fighters against the sunset yeah should not have been in the movie <laughs> it shouldn't have watch it next time it right did, it doesn't really make any sort of spatial sense because takadana doesn't even seem to be in sunset and sunset. the rest yeah, and yeah the, and, no that's exactly that's exactly it it's like why did they cut from one to the other they could have skipped that shot it mm-hmm. seemed like that was something where abrams didn't kill his babies yeah and but but then he ended up killing some other stuff that sort of made for the for for a made bit of better confusion. narrative sense. Well, not really. I mean, it, it kind of confused. A lot of people think Phasma's dead. A lot and of people think uh, Maz Kanata is gone. Um, I hope she comes back because I really I really liked uh, just the way Lupita Nyong'o played the character. Yeah, um, I bet she's going to end up with Chewie. Yeah, she's, we're going to see her again. <laughs> yeah. 
one of the, the biggest things over the last couple of days that I've been approached to about people since mm-hmm. we've all said uh, we love Captain Phasma, mm-hmm. haven't seen any of her in a movie yet, but we love Captain Phasma. They're what, and they're like, why they underutilized her? They should have done more with her. You know what? They, I don't think they could have. They set it up that she's there. I to do, me, here's I what just, I needed. I'm okay with a little bit that we had her. However, like I didn't, I, in the back of my head, I knew, I mean, from marketing or from press comments that she's not going to be around a lot. But I just needed her to fight back against Finn more. You know, she but, gave in so easily. Like yeah, what we've seen of her to that point. That chewy tackling yeah, her chewy was tackler. perfect. She had though. a concussion, probably. Here, that here. was. But after that, I'm like, no. This what we've seen of her to this point. What we know about the first order. I expect her to take a but bullet for the cause. Was, or blast her. Was, he was in charge then. Finn was in charge then, and <laughs> she just she was yeah. she's good at following he orders. Made sure that he he told her she was in charge. But what if we see Phasma in episode eight, and oh. she has to uh, overcome that she really didn't do any of that? Oh, now right. she has to redeem herself. Ryan Johnson is going to make use of Gwendolyn Christie. Of that, there is no doubt. I have one hundred percent faith that Ryan well, Johnson is going to figure out a way to get Phasma into that action. And it's going to mean something. Here's here's the quick fix that I'm sort of surprised didn't come to be in the force awakens. How come the baton trooper wasn't phasma? I have not figured that out either. Like she was not on that battle at that battle at all. Why isn't the baton trooper phasma? Because Han and Chewie shoot him. Yeah. You, you can come up with a different exit for that trooper. Like, you know, or that phasma's armor is a little bit stronger. And even Chewie's poom poom gun isn't well, enough to what? actually pierce I it. I think, it was a trooper, maybe not so much Phasma. I think that character in that he used that weapon was specifically to show like, oh, hey, Finn received combat yeah. training that would allow him to use a lightsaber like and understand how to do um, melee that fighting. Kind of fighting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Melee, yeah. No, I, I can um, see, I can see but, that, but it also seems like if you have his, his CO in that role, like you also get the sense that, of course, he would have learned that. His CO is taking it to him. Uh, That's true. It just seems like instead of having a random trooper get in that fight with him, if you make that Phasma, uh, not only do you give Phasma more to do, but when he sticks the gun under her chin later and is like, I'm in charge now, it's going to mean a little bit more. It's going to have a little bit extra oomph uh, for when Han's like, okay, dial it down, kid. Bring it down. (laughs) Bring it down a notch. Um, But no, I really like Maz Kanata. I kind of hope that she sticks around. I want to see how she gets used in episode eight, if she's used in episode eight. Well, I mean, she's definitely the Yoda character here. Yeah. Again, we didn't get to ask Amy. What did you think? I thought Maz Kanata was a delight. I really liked Lupita's performance and her voice was so unique and strong. And I liked seeing this older character that had more, you know, Yoda was older too, but there was an aspect that even though he was strong, he was a little, he's a little nutty. He seemed a little... Even when that was kind of maybe a farce, he seemed um, a little just weak in some, some ways, so you know, just of, she was so full of life. Yeah, she that just I could have so listened much. to her for an hour talking. Exactly. I could have sat down in a bar with her and had a drink and just listened to her talk. Well, and, exactly. And, and the flip side of the, the Yoda uh, analog would be Snoke. And I don't think there's a lot to talk about with Snoke. Um, he's just <sighs> sort of. Yeah, he's just sort of there. Yeah, he I don't like the, that character design at all. It's so I, Lord of the Rings. There's there's time to change that. I really do think he's the Wizard of Oz, right? I don't think I he's agree. that tall. No. I don't think that's I don't think what he, he looks, looks like. like. I think that there's definitely a lot of room Somebody for them to Somebody said he's the same species that. as Masconata. I can't, I can't see I that. I don't see that. I'm I've been hearing it immune a lot, too. He wasn't a giant being. When, when that first scene started until the hologram image went away... I was like, this is ridiculous. There's no reason why we have to have a 25-foot-tall guy. 
That's ridiculous. They yeah. just brought it. They're all big Robotech fans. He's Zentradi. Yeah. No, uh, apparently he's supposed to be seven feet tall, and that's it. Well, seven feet is a, a far cry from the 40 he yeah. was in the movie because he's making up for something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, the, the Wizard of Oz comparison seems apt to me. It really does feel like, and, and Han sort of hints at it, that he's fronting just as hard as Kylo is. Like, he's probably not as powerful in the dark side as he claims to be, but because everyone is sort of in this weird uh, period where they're not sure, you know, if any of the stuff that happened in the original trilogy actually ever happened. Like, he seems sort of snake oil salesman, and I don't think Kylo realizes it. I think and that's Ky- why they got to get rid of Luke. That's why they want Luke gone, because they don't want well, him training anybody and that could defeat him. That's why I think it was so smart for them not to have Luke in this movie. As much as I wanted Luke in this movie, yeah. Luke would have just shown up, torn everyone apart like warm bread, <laughs> and that would have been that. There's not, there's not much to Snoke, though, is there? No. No. Dude's, dude's an oversized hologram who barks a lot. That's, yeah. that's Who looks it. like an orc. <laughs> <laughs> Although I do want to pose this question to you guys, um, since we're talking about Luke um, and the fact that he only shows up for 30 seconds and doesn't actually say anything. Um, oh. And he turns around and he's got kind of a, like I mentioned before, he doesn't look like he's all there. He's, he doesn't look quite right. Like his mouth is hanging open when we first see I him. I think he's still feeling Han's death. Do you think he's feeling Han's death or do you think Han's death? And I think that just like Darth Maul, he spent so much time by himself that he started losing his mind a little bit. too. Yeah. Do you think that that's possible? I'm, I'm wondering if if we're maybe misinterpreting what's happening with the, the Knights of Ren. Like we know that Kylo is called the master of the Knights of Ren, but we never see any of the other Knights of Ren except for in that vision. Like what if Luke did something to the other Knights of Ren and left Kylo alone because, because he couldn't kill his nephew. But he still managed to like slaughter 12 other people in cold blood. Like what if his answer to what happened at his temple shook him to the core that he felt he had to go and hide and hide uh you know hide Ray as well and hide everyone from oh, everything. Man. Like what if that's what happened to Luke? Why what if so that's like, why Luke is sort of like Oh Kylo. man! Please do not give me this lightsaber because I don't want to have any part of anything right now. Because what if Kylo turned a whole bunch of younglings mm-hmm. and the younglings attacked Luke and he had to basically Vader the younglings? Whatever How happened, would Luke- yeah. Whatever happened to that temple? I think really messed him up, and I don't That's think crazy. it's. In- I don't think it's entirely out of bounds That's that nuts. the Luke we know from Return of the Jedi ended up having to do something that doesn't seem very Lukeish. I mean, hell, the idea that he might have dropped off Ray on Jakku and left her with Unkar Plutt for 15 to 20 years doesn't like seem that very... That says a lot. Yeah, that's a that's not a thing that I would consider Luke doing, but I, he I obviously apparently I think did it. telling that his Jedi robes are white on the inside, but muddied and filthy on the outside. I think that says something. Speaking of Unkar Plutt, uh, that's Simon Pegg. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting to note that Simon Pegg is now the caretaker of the two most iconic ships in popular culture. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He fixes and the Enterprise and he owned the Millennium oh, Falcon. Right. I don't I I don't think you could say he fixed it though. No. No. He that fi- compressor was bad news and so was that <laughs> fuel pump. I love that I love that moment from Han Solo when she pulls out the, uh, the circuit <laughs> yes. board and shows it to him and he just sort of He's like huh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I loved I, I loved Han's joy in that part too though. Han's two brilliant maneuvers with the Falcon though. Oh god. I mean, Ray was great with it, but when he just jumps to light speed straight out of the hangar, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, was perfect. Oh yeah, no, and that then, was that was some Battlestar then, Galactica stuff right there. He was taking a uh, he was taking a note out of Admiral Adama's playbook, which I very much appreciated because if you're going to steal Han, steal from the best. Ooh. And then when he decides that he's going to, they're going to make their landing approach at light speed. Yep. And Finn realizes that and quickly sits down and buckles in <laughs> as though that, as though that's going to make all the difference in him surviving. You know what I appreciated the most about that is that when Ray takes off with the Falcon at first and she's accidentally running it into into things like you can you sideways. oh god you can feel. Uh, the the audience sort of clench up, like, "Oh my God, you're gonna damage the ship!" You're injuring the. Fa- that's I, my inside. I'm like, "Oh, you're hurting the ship." I and, can't look. And then at the end of the film, when Han has it, he just runs it through an entire forest like it's an electric razor, <laughs> and is <laughs> is carrying on a conversation with Chewie to shut up about it. So I mean, I I thought that was great. I, I like. That uh, the Falcon is basically that's Kasdan again taking a page right out of Indiana Jones, mm-hmm. and uh, instead of a raft flying through the snow, it was the yeah, Falcon. Yeah, yeah. You know, what was really cool is when uh, the gun on it was only in the forward position, and that move that she makes and essentially shuts it off to do that flip. Holy crap! That was man. amazing. Oh, yeah. yes. you get, they do that on Star Tours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, oh, yeah, that was, and it's amazing. <clears throat> okay, what's what's cooler? Uh, that moment where she stalls out the Falcon, or the one where you have Finn running along the ground, taking out stormtroopers, while Poe is going, doing loop-de-loops oh. in the air and taking everything out. It's an extended tracking one-shot, and it's maybe some of the best flying I've ever seen in a Star Wars movie. My brother told me, he's like, you know, I always thought Wedge was a cool pilot, but I never saw any evidence of it now. And seeing Poe Dameron do that thing in that one shot... Uh, yeah, I don't think Wedge is anything anymore. Screw that guy. <laughs> so Finn doesn't know it's he doesn't know it's Poe Dameron. He thinks Poe Dameron is dead, yeah. and he screams out, "That's the best pilot I've ever seen!" Yeah. And then he realizes it later on that it was Poe. That that scene, that long shot, was very cool. Mm. Oh, should we talk about uh, how amazingly challenging Poe's role really is? Because Oscar Isaac pulls it off to perfection. He is so charming. I was sort of surprised that Brian He's, called him arrogant earlier. I didn't get any sense of no, real no, no. Off I, I, arrogant, arrogant is maybe the wrong word, but he's he's a little cocky, but in a like not in a like overblown way. In a like, I just know that I am. This is a fact that I am no, the best the guy, pilot. He's no he Dash is Rendar, incredibly oh, full of himself, but he does it in a really charming way. He just yes. seems he seems super earnest in a way that I haven't seen in one of these kind of movies since like the forties. No, he's a, his, he's a forties hero. The scene with Finn where he goes, "Yeah, we're gonna do this." Yeah, like I wasn't cocky. That was like, "Hey, we're gonna do this. This is gonna be awesome." <laughs> I, I loved that moment too, where he's just like, "Why are you helping me?" And Finn's like, uh, it's, it's the, the right, right thing, thing to, to do. do. And he's like, you, you need a pilot. I need, I need, a, I need a pilot. Yeah, <laughs> um, like the, everything about Poe is so straightforward and, and so earnest and so honest. Like there's no sense of subterfuge to the guy. Um, but he still manages to have fun with almost every moment you toss the, up in front of him. I, like the tone it. of the movie is absolutely 100% set when they put him on his knees in front of Kylo Ren and the mo and the movie <laughs> the movie feels serious. The movie feels like it might be dour um, and weighty. And the first words that pop out of Poe Dameron's mouth. Uh, so who talks first? Do you talk first? I do, first. I talk, do I talk? Do I talk? It's hard to tell with all that apparatus. I, and he's just like the, I think the coolest line that I keep having fly through my head over and over and over again, which I think is pretty much like the coolest thing for anyone to say ever. Mm-hmm. And I know some people were kind of like miffed that that the story Luke Skywalker turns into like a MacGuffin. Yeah. But 
when Poe Dameron says, that droid's got a map that leads straight to Luke Skywalker, that's pretty much the coolest thing in the galaxy you can say. <laughs> like, like that's like that's the end-all be-all, and, yeah. and that makes up for the fact that Luke basically becomes a MacGuffin. Well, and that tells you, again, like that's a really good example of how hard that role actually is. That's not an easy line of dialogue to sell as to if it's off. real. Yeah, and he just... He just spits it out. Something I really liked about Poe, like little things too, like when he was on board the finalizer, like the way he looked around, like, uh oh, like <laughs> you could see the expression on his face. Like, this is kind of cool. Like, I'm terrified, but like this, this yeah. is impressive. Well, yeah, he was everything I wanted him to be. I'm glad that he has been the background of my computer and yeah. my phone for months for I, very good reason. <laughs> I am betting you that Ryan Johnson has a Brothers Bloom-esque buddy comedy at the heart of episode eight with Poe Dameron and Finn. Yeah. I'm, I'm betting I you that's what's going I down. I cannot wait. They were, like, they were bros forever. Like when yep. they see each other after that battle and they go to embrace, I know we talked about it earlier, but the fact that after that one instance where they're like, I, we're going to help each other do this, we're going to do this. And mm-hmm. they never see each other again. And all of a sudden they're embracing like they've been best friends their whole lives. Yeah, yeah they're well, bros. Sure. They got uh, out of a very Finn, serious situation together. Finn's it's never, bonding. Yeah. Finn's never had anybody and Pro Dameron helps him escape and, and shows him, you know, that you're a real human being. That, I think Finn has the next line that kind of keeps the tone Mm-hmm. the best where he's just like stay calm stay calm i, I am calm <laughs> no, no i'm talking to myself <laughs> there's a lot of little things from finn about that, in oh, that yeah. movie that that did it well L- let me quickly ask you the the, the three of you this too so mm-hmm. we have been talking about this movie for years yeah and it's come we've all seen it when the when the purchase of lucasfilm was announced three years ago and they announced that the movies were coming did you have any inclination in your head that we would be this happy with what we saw? Like, I, I thought so. I thought, well, and you guys heard me beating the drum for a long time now that I was like, this is probably going to be Star Trek 09. And that's just, I feel like that's essentially what we got. J.J. Um, Abrams has now made two very good Star Wars movies. It just happens to be that one of them was named Star Trek. I kind of thought this is what we were going to get. I'm I'm absolutely happy with the result, and I'm really happy. I'm, what I'm really really happy about is that uh, all those loose ends that have been laid out on the table are getting picked up by Ryan Johnson. I am so excited for Episode Eight. I am so yeah. excited to see what strange, weird direction uh, he's going to take this thing. I I cannot wait. Actually, when I saw Star Trek 09, yeah, the first thing I said to Ariana when we were leaving the theater is, if they made a Star Wars movie like this, I would love it. And then mm-hmm. when we heard about JJ, and I thought about it more. I was pretty well, damn positive we get something. Here's else. a really interesting story. My wife hates Star Trek. I love Star Trek. Yeah. I, if I put on the television show, she like will sneer in disgust until I turn it off. Mm-hmm. She felt compelled and got dragged to Star Trek 09 and loved it. It was the first time she ever connected with Star Trek. I dragged her to all the prequel movies the same way, right? And she just kind of sneered like 90% of the fights we've ever had in our marriage were discussions about Attack of the Clones. Mm. Um, <laughs> you got a rough relationship, Brian. Yeah. Yikes. I, I, that's not actually an exaggeration. <laughs> um, she wasn't necessarily looking for... I mean, she was like, oh, Force Awakens, it looks kind of good. We'll see it. Mm. But she's seen it three times now. Yeah. And not even with me. She's seen it twice without me. Because she liked it that much. It and is, I think that, it is that hol- taps into what everybody loves about it, yeah. not just the the narrow dogmatic view of the Star Wars fans. It is funny. It is a straight up funny movie. It might be 
as consistently, if not just a little bit more consistently funny than Empire, which is the previously the funniest movie in the start, which I, I know people I think, think a new hope is funnier. Uh, maybe. Yeah. I, I don't know. Like there's there like you watch Empire Strikes Back and I know everyone likes to think that it's, you know, it's it's romantic, it's dark, it's scary, but like check your watch. Like every two and a half minutes there's a joke and it yeah. lands. It lands well. Um and this movie has so many really well-delivered lines of dialogue. My theater popped for every single character entrance from a, an original trilogy member. Except for Luke's, for very obvious reasons. Like, they turn around and people are like... Mine <gasps> did for Luke. Yours, yours did pop for Luke. Yeah. Mine was yeah. dead silent. My last one did for Luke. Okay, mine was dead silent. What was your favorite introduction? Han. Okay, Brian? 3PO. That's the one. That was so perfect! Oh my goodness! Because <laughs> Leia comes down, and Princess Leia's theme starts playing. Da, 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 da. And... I'm I'm starting to feel like maybe I could well up because I'm I'm like oh my god Leia is back and that perfect piece of music maybe the most perfect piece of music John Williams could have composed uh, in that in that tone in that style uh, starts to come up and then out of the bottom of the frame comes hello 3PO just pops up taking up the entire screen you're like you jackass you don't recognize me because of my red arm yes <laughs> that's why I don't recognize you doing exactly what 3PO would do yes that was so great that was it my it is i see 3PO, 3PO. <laughs> yeah it was it was great. it was fit there perfectly because it was funny um the Han thing, I wasn't expecting it to be Han yet, so that was my yeah, favorite. That was favorite your favorite film. intro. Now, for me, like that's one of my favorite moments of the entire film, period. Was 3PO? Which is amazing yeah, yeah. for me to say, because I'm not a 3PO fan. So the fact that 3PO popping up made me that happy. They, no, they it was perfect. There was no better way to reintroduce that character, mm-hmm. yeah. period. Although I do think that they sort of missed an opportunity to make uh, R2 story uh, as, as emotional as it could have been. Like Having 3PO explain why R2 is shut down to oh, BB-8, so it makes sense, but it was also sort of done in a, in kind of a children's book way that that I think sort of limited how emotional but that could be. Like even the, though the idea of three, uh, of R two choosing to shut down because his friend went away. Oh, yeah. See, I mean, the way I say it, it sounds like it should be an automatic tearjerker, but the way it plays in the film, it plays more like the Star Wars storybook of why R two D two shut down, and that and that makes sense. I understand well, why they did that. Like tapping him and trying to get him to wake up reminded yeah. me of the Ewoks when the one Ewok dies and the other one tries to pick him up and walk away. Yeah, and he realizes he's not alive anymore. Yeah, see, so. yeah, those are those little moments that we were just talking about. There are a lot of little moments like that. Sprinkled BB eight has film. a lot of them. Oh yeah, yeah. awesome. He well, was so awesome. And I mentioned Leia, but we haven't really talked about her much. And I do sort of feel like she kind of she didn't have all that much to do in this film. But did you guys like the stuff that she did do? Like, like Carrie Fisher was given a little bit more to work with than I think a lot of people was expecting. Yeah, and I think she took what they gave her to work with and actually worked with it. Mm-hmm. The the way she says to Han that she's always hated to see him go, and then him saying, "I know that's why I did it. I wanted you to miss me." Um, <laughs> More so than their their embrace. Yeah, I I, I liked Leia's. Well, and it's there. It's it, that that scene hits harder the second time, knowing that's the last time she's going to see yeah. him. But yeah. the moment with Leia that I love is that callback to Yoda and Revenge of the Sith and Obi Wan in A New Hope, mm-hmm. where he dies and she feels it. Yeah, and that's yes. that's what's amazing because you kind of forget with seeing knowing that Ray is four sense if Kylo Ren is you, you kind of forget that she's Luke's sister and she's Vader's daughter and that she is force sensitive. And then she feels that when, when Han dies mm-hmm. and just the, the expression on her face and there's nothing she can do about it. Yeah. 
I would like to say more about Leia, but there's just so much else going on in the film. Oh, yeah. And, and here's the thing. We don't have to tackle it all uh, in this show. You guys are going to be talking about this for months, months on end. So um, we do have to touch on this because uh, there are you know actual complaints to be levied at the movie. There are some flaws in the filmmaking. We've already mentioned some of them. But are, are, is there anything about the film that sort of stands out to you as maybe a big missed opportunity or a bit of a disappointment? I'm going to start with Mike. Um, yeah, there's one thing. I, I understand why it was done this way. I don't like the final helicopter shot. It seemed kind of Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Rings ish to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand why he didn't speak. I understand why she didn't speak. I, I I liked that interchange, but just that last shot just struck me wrong. And to leave the theater with that, mm-hmm. and when I said to you, I need to process Brian when we were walking out of the theater, that was one of the things I needed to process. And over the course of time, maybe that will change once I see what happens in episode eight and where they go with it. But I think that ending was kind of a missed opportunity. For All right. Uh, Amy? Same. I didn't like the ending. Uh, I, I mean, I like the story. I like that she found Luke. But Star Wars so traditionally ends with that group shot, either looking at the camera or away. But mm. that, that was a hallmark that I like and that I wanted to see. Yeah. And I just have a really hard time wrapping my head around the First Order and their purpose. And because of that, I should have been really upset that they destroyed six planets or five planets, whatever it was, and it mm. didn't hit me. Yeah, right? So, yeah. So that kind of nebulous just big bad i couldn't get a grasp on their purpose beside what i read in the opening crawl and i didn't like that yeah uh brian i think it's the editing i think george lucas is just hands down a better editor than than jj abrams Mm. so i think the the multi-situational plot climax george lucas is a lot better at balancing Mm -hmm. those different ingredients to make it seem as though you're never with one too long or that everything logically follows to the next. George Lucas is way better at transitions. So like uh, the major mistake I noticed in the editing of the climax, where you have Chewie blow the the oscillator, Mm -hmm. right? And then it cuts to them running and running and running and having the first part of their lightsaber battle. And then it cuts to the X-Wing pilots finally noticing. Yeah. Yeah. that the oscillator has a new hole in it. It's like, guys, that happened five minutes ago. You're terrible pilots. Yeah, there, there's, there's a sense of time there that gets sort of distorted and warped, and I'm wondering if it's because like some shots got pulled out and some shots got rearranged. Like, I'm supposed to believe that, that Ray and Finn have somehow... I have a hard time buying that they ran like the five miles to get out of the blast radius uh, in the minute and a half that it takes to, and, to get to the next scene. I don't know about that. And that Kylo got there before them. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Chewie... Um, there were questions about Chewie dying there I as well. Like uh, my my brother asked, he said like the editing there was so bad. He thought Chewie killed himself. Yep. Yeah, which would have been completely understandable given the context of the sequence that we'd just seen leading up mm-hmm, to that yeah. moment. Yeah, like um, like Abrams movies go, they go fast. They are very breathless. That is a that is a word you can use to describe all of them. And uh, I think that, that maybe there, there should have been a couple calming breaths there uh, near the end. Well, and, like as and this movie got towards its, its climax, it just, it started hyperventilating more than, and just George Lucas is much better at cutting in with close-ups where you need to, to understand the context yeah. of the action mm-hmm. where um, take the fight with general grievous versus whatever happens with Ray and Kylo when she hacks at his lightsaber, right? No. Oh, yeah. When general grievous has one of his hands cut off, by obi-wan you see the saber slide to the hand and you see it sever off and then you see the close-up of the hand 
hitting the ground. Yeah. Those shots are logically put together to show you exactly what happened without outlining it or explaining it. When Ray inserts Kylo's saber into the ground and I think she maybe damages it. I'm not sure because I, yeah. I'm not given any context for that. Yeah, I she think she part I think of his leg off because it looked like she did. But then, well, know. I thought she just cut a piece of his cape off. The point is, is that J.J. Abrams is not as competent at visual storytelling in that cinematic sense than George Lucas is. I, I wouldn't go that far, I would, but he, he, <laughs> I, I, he, I mean, he like I think George Lucas is like a ten, and J.J. Abrams is like an eight. I don't think that's. You know what I mean? Where Michael Bay might be like a two. You know, we don't have to bring Bay into this, man. You're Let's not. I'm sorry. There was a trailer for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on it, and I just I can't get that awful taste. Do so you out of my appreciate mouth. just how Lucas tells it better visually? Yeah, yeah. I think that's my biggest complaint. Is okay. I think if they would have had George Lucas just consulting in the editing room, it would have been. It would have. It would have sung a lot louder. I know a lot of people have a problem with me saying this, but. As far as the the last shot goes, if the, they go back and forth between Luke's face and Ray's face, if they would have just stopped it right before somebody went to speak mm-hmm. and left it at that, I probably would have liked that better. Yeah. Um, but I don't I don't make movies. I don't know what I'm talking about. At least Brian has an idea what he's talking about. So I'm not going to sit there and complain constantly yeah. about the end of the movie when what they gave us was far exceeding what I was expecting. Now for me. And this is going to sound like blasphemy, and I, I swear it's probably going to surprise a bunch of you um, listening, and maybe you guys even on the other side of this microphone right now. Um, I'm starting to wonder if maybe he should have just asked Michael Giacchino to do the score in the first place. Hmm, that, why? That, I, don't, I don't think John Williams did all that great a job on the score. I like Ray's theme. I think the Jedi Steps is an amazing cue. I... I don't know if he's cut out to do these kinds of movies anymore. The 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 progression of his career uh and and the way he's moved along that timeline has led him to a place where I don't know if he's if he's the best call to score a Star Wars movie anymore. As crazy as that sounds. No, I don't I don't think you're wrong because I have to tell you that uh I didn't notice the movie the music in this movie as much as the others. Uh-huh. And one of the things I asked somebody, we had to get from one theater to the other very fast. And I said, Am I gonna miss anything by leaving as soon as the movie's over? And they said, just ten minutes of John Williams John Williams music. music. And I was okay with that. And then when I watched the second screening, mm-hmm. I may not have sat there and listened to it all. So yeah. I I, so, th- I think this is maybe the weakest of all the Star Wars scores, which is surprising I, the hell out of me because you guys know that was the thing I was most excited oh, yeah. about. Brand new John Williams music, especially considering he had like six months to compose. Now, I know in the middle of that six months, at some point he had to go in uh, for a medical procedure like the man is a champ for finishing the job, for doing the work, even with all that personal turmoil roiling around. But for a film that was constructed, absolutely, to work as like a greatest hits mixtape of Star Wars, he has very little leitmotif in this film. Uh, The moments that he does call back to um, are few and far between and not all that uh, elaborately done. Um, And the new themes that he constructed, like Ray's theme is good. And I can't wait to see what happens with it in the next film as it gets, you know, built on and more complicated. But aside from Ray's theme and the Jedi steps, like there's something to be said for the fact the most emotional moment in the film, the most rousing, the most Star Warsy moment in the film was tracked in from 1977. Like that, 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 that keeps sticking in the back of my head. I love, I love the use of burning homestead. I love it to death. But I'm sort of like it. Maybe this film might have been better served by having Michael Giacchino come in 
and do his best take on all of the things that sound like Star Wars to you. I don't think what you're saying is blasphemy, but yeah. for me to comment on it, uh-huh. I really feel like I need to soak in the the soundtrack more. I have been looping um, it. I've been looping it for the last I, three days. And I'm not saying I and I don't. I'm. I mean, I will nine times out of ten defer to you on on yeah. the music stuff. But for me, like right now, listening to Ray's theme, it feels like the same way I felt the first couple of times I listened to Battle for the Heroes and Revenge of the Sith. Yeah. Now, that's a great piece of music, and it's mm-hmm. grown on me a lot. But the first time I heard it, I said, does this sound like Star Wars? I'm not sure. And I needed to marry the music to the film a lot more and learn mm-hmm. the cues. Yeah. And I just haven't had the chance to do that with with this to make an opinion yet. When yeah. we talked to David Collins, he said something similar about the mu- music, that the stuff that he loved right away may take months until he appreciates it and, and loves it more than the stuff that he liked right away. So time may tell with this, I, but I, I get what Bobby's saying. I just don't think that it has the oomph that I've come to expect well, from a Star Wars no, film. There's no Imperial March. No. But I there think is. Oh, there I mean, is. I'm sorry. Well, I mean, like equivalent but, of it being as... Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. Nothing but I think yeah. that there's, yeah. there's a reason for that too, right? Like the First Order is... Uh, as impotent as the music that accompanies them. Yeah, but I don't. I don't want. I don't want impotent music from John Williams. Quote of the day, right there. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want that. That's a problem for me. Yeah, so I I'm, think there would have been a better. Yeah, better, more I, I mean that. That's not what I was expecting to say at any point in, during the post game. Was that I seemed c- like the one thing everybody thought was a, was the shoe in? Yeah, and sure. it, and it turns out like I'm like maybe like and he can't not ask John Williams. He you can't not ask him. And he would have gotten raked over the coals and and torn apart like uh, the first victim in Nightmare on Elm Street if he hadn't gone to John Williams, if he hadn't tried to get John Williams. I would have been raking him across the coals as hard as I possibly could if he hadn't reached out to John Williams. But now that I've heard the score, um, now that I've seen how it was used in the film, I'm, I'm sort of like, maybe he should have just asked Giacchino. Maybe yeah. he should have. And that's weird. But I mean, I, again, I don't want to. I mean, it sounds like we're closing on negative, but we're not because there's so much good stuff about no, this because film. Here's the positive. Yes. The positive for me is, is that uh, we are all super fans of Star Wars. It means so much to us in all of our lives in different ways. And we're sitting here talking about a movie that, like most Star Wars podcasters or fans, would talk about it completely with rose-colored glasses on mm-hmm. or take the opposite side and, t- and only look at the negative that came from this film. And we can sit here and for over two hours talk about the good and the bad of this film mm-hmm. and the reasons why we love it and how it works and what doesn't work. So that's the Because positive. only a Sith deals in absolutes, yeah. Mike. <laughs> that, is, that is very true. Well, and, true. And, and, to, and to put the nice shiny bow on it, I do want to ask you guys two last questions before uh, we all break. I take my leave and this ship sails on into a new era of Star Wars fandom. Uh, I'm going to put you guys on the spot two last times. (laughs) First on the spot question. Favorite moment overall. Amy, In this film. In this film. Favorite moment overall. The absolute number one. Ray calling the lightsaber. All right. Brian? Han Solo's last hurrah. The confrontation there and and his, his end. All right, Mike. The part of this movie that I'll go back to and watch over and over and over again mm-hmm. is when Ray and Finn are running away and they get into the Falcon and that scene running from the that garbage area. ship. Yeah, yeah, that garbage ship. We'll yeah, take the garbage. That garbage ship will do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's your favorite moment. All right. What about you, Bobby? Oh, I already said it was uh, the uh, where she's trying to fix the Falcon and uh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And Finn's trying to. That to was con- two hours ago. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Now, here's the real on the spot moment, because you know for a fact 
Um, it's going to be one of the first questions anyone you meet asks you. Where do you slot it in the rankings? Amy? Ooh, um, it's up there with Empire and New Hope for me. So it's in my top three. What, where is it? You're on the spot. It's three right now. Empire, New Hope, Force Awakens. Boom. All right. Brian? Until I see it more, it is ranked seven currently. <laughs> what? You're pretty oh, Brian. Brian! I need to see it more. I need part of Star Wars to me. You so much is familiarity. And, and I just don't have that familiarity <laughs> with this film right now. Like, if I were, if I were going That's to That's part room, of putting you on the spot. You're, you're at a disadvantage. That's part of putting you on the spot. I know, but I'm saying uh, right now, it's yeah. my seventh favorite. Wow. All right, I wouldn't expect and that. And I love it. I, I love it. It's my seventh favorite. Okay. Mike. Watching the marathon in that setting the other night mm-hmm. has shattered my belief of the rankings of the Star Wars movies that I've had in place for years. It's true. He came out shaken that he loved Return of the Jedi. <laughs> so I, I don't know where to rank all seven at this moment. Yeah. But uh, with that, with certainty, looking Brian straight in the eyes, yeah. Empire Strikes Back. Mm-hmm. The Force Awakens, mm-hmm. and given more time, th- this movie may be equal to it, and it puts Episode Eight in place to be better than Empire Strikes Back. Oh to me. goodness, I like that. I like that. So okay, uh, for me, it's uh, it's exactly the same as Amy's rankings. It's uh, Empire, Star Wars, The Force Awakens. So uh, yeah, where's, and, where's all the Revenge of the Sith love around here? <laughs> Revenge of the Sith is my third favorite Actually, Star Wars movie. Um, Talking to my kids, my kids were really interesting because I asked them this question, mm-hmm. even though I didn't think it was fair for me to be asked. Of course not. Um, I asked them, <laughs> and Anakin is still 100% on board. Revenge of the Sith is the best Star Wars movie he's ever seen. Mm-hmm. But Scout decided that Force Awakens is the best. Nice. And I think that gives me a thrill, though, that a new generation of Star Wars fans are finding something in this movie that clicks mm-hmm. with them, that we're going to have more generations of people coming into this big tent of Star Wars fandom yeah. and they're going to all bring different perspectives and different likes. Regardless of their age. Yeah. yeah. One of the hosts that uh, um, Jeff and Nikki who took us in this week to stay at their house uh, to keep the cost low on the trip. Um, Nikki, her dad's a huge Star Wars fan. Uh, it was in her life, but she never really liked it. Mm. Um, we came back after I took Jeff to go see it the second screening. Um, the next day she said, I really need to see this movie. I see what people are talking about on Facebook. I see, I hear you guys talking about it. She's never had a want to see a Star Wars movie. We took her last night and she says, I can't wait to see the next Star Wars movie. Yeah. So regardless of age, this is pulling people into it. And we asked the question at the theater, how many people brought new Star new uh, viewers to this movie? And there was a lot of people. Yeah, there, there were people who, who their first experience with Star Wars was that marathon of the first seven movies. Yeah, yeah. And this is a... This is a very rewatchable film. I know a lot of people were, were curious as to whether or not uh, it would hold up on a second viewing. And all the punchlines, all the jokes, all the comedy, all the character interactions that I loved on first viewing, um, I love just as much on the second viewing. I'm not going to ever uh, feel like that, that interaction on the Falcon with BB-8 and Finn. I don't think that's ever going to get old. That is no, never That thumbs up with the lighter is never going to no. get old. That's no. always going to I be magic to me. We're, we're three days from it being released, and it is a classic yeah. Star Wars moment already. Like that, that moment where the nurse is placating Chewbacca. That's never not going to play with it. Oh, you must be very brave. <laughs> like, that's perfect. God, I love that to death. They did a great job. Oh, man. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, like, I... 
I have a hard time seeing myself getting very tired of this movie anytime I'm, soon. I, and that's and that's a huge thing to say about a Star Wars film because God knows how many viewings we've all racked up. Uh, these movies need to not feel old. You need to feel like you're walking into them fresh every time you sit down in front of them to sort of take their place in the pantheon that we've placed a lot of Star Wars films. And I think The Force Awakens has that, even with the problems that we've outlined, even with the, you know, the weird little bits of disappointment that we can sort of brush off. The fact that we can brush them off speaks very well of what Lucasfilm did with this movie. So I want to thank Lucasfilm and mm-hmm. Disney and Abrams and the story group and Kathleen Kennedy and everybody who did a great job of this movie. Yeah. But I want to thank one more person. Bobby, I know you said you keep saying you're retiring and you're leaving yeah. us. I want to thank you for doing a hell of a job with this particular episode. Oh. All the rumor controls and now I'm anxious to go back and see. <laughs> and uh, I kind of hope that you get bored with your retirement and you come back to us soon. <laughs> I'm we're going to we're going to send invitations as often as we can think of. OK, I like it. Yes. I like it. I'm really curious as to what you guys think of the rumor controls, though. Those are going to be really entertaining uh, and comedic in ways I absolutely was not intending when I recorded them. But I will take the laughs, however they may come. Um, I will say this, like the trip through uh, the rumor controls, if you decide to take them, uh, is, is fairly interesting in that you can see how the film sort of changed shape and development. And you can also see how the game of telephone warped the stuff that we did end up watching. I mean, it's, it's, it's a fun ride. And I, I think the rumor controls are going to be, uh, pretty interesting, even with all the, the hiccups, slip ups and face plants, uh, that the, that the spoiler game ended up inflicting upon itself on the way yeah. to the movie opening. So uh, I downloaded them this morning. They're going to be my, what I'm listening to on the flight back. Yeah. And I, I, I don't remember where I said this, but I'm pretty sure I said it somewhere. If not for Bobby keeping a lot of this stuff away from me, I don't think I'd love the movie as much as I do. Like that made a huge yeah. difference. Well, for yeah, me. we're screwed for episodes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's. Oh, I'll, I'll be. Pro- I'll probably be semi spoiler free. I don't think I'll go 100 percent spoiler free, but I'm absolutely uh, pulling myself from the goal. I'm not going to be catching pucks for you guys. I'm sorry. Um, well, I, you did. A, you you took one this time, uh, so I think it's all right. Well, uh, I'll, well, I think on that note, uh, go ahead and shove me out the door. Uh, I'll turn the steering wheel back over to, to the mic pilot. So uh, whew, this, is pretty, this has been a good ride, guys. And I'm glad I got to take it with all of you. On behalf of Amy Ratcliffe, of the mic pilot, and of Brian Young, I am Bobby Roberts. May the force be with you. Always. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.